Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 24th episode of Slime Time SideQuest, an official Dragon's Den podcast. This is Yelling Yangus, the legendary bandit. And this is Pendy the Poltergeist. Ooh! Oh, oh wow, Pendy. Oh, you really scared me there. Oh, I thought you were a real ghost. Well, that's understandable. I've actually been dead all this time. I'm like Bruce Willis from The Sixth Sense. Really? I mean, with a name like Penny the Poltergeist, I figured you would be, you know, stuck inside an old house and, you know, doing things like stacking chairs into a pyramid on the dinner table or, you know, possessing a scary clown go- a scary clown doll to attack the kids. Nah, that was more of the 80s style. Nowadays, poltergeists like myself can pass as real people just like that. Huh. Well, you learn something new every day. Pretty spooky, huh? It sure is. You know, what's weird is that this is, you know, Give me a sense of deja vu. Oh, uh, that's understandable. What with uh, what time of year it is and all. Wait, yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, bugs and ghouls. It's time for another Halloween episode of Side Quest. Woo! So this year is Halloween Two: Electric Boogaloo, a follow-up to our first Halloween Side Quest episode from last year. We decided um, last year. That we, excuse me, last year we took a look at a number of scary and or horror themed games. But this year we'll be taking a horrifyingly different direction. Ooh, sounds fantastic. Will we be be talking about scary movies? We will be talking about scary movies and TV shows instead. You thought it would be all video games? Well, audience, that's the scariest twist of them all. I'm feeling pretty terrified already. I'm thinking both of us are possessed by other spirits too, because we both had troubles freaking the intro. (laughs) But um, thankfully, tonight we have a team of horror experts to help tackle this topic. First, you know, want to give a thank you to Pendy for joining us tonight and filling in his host for Platy since he's busy. So thank you, Pendy. You're welcome. And let's not forget our guest for this evening. Let's give a big hello to Elvis Lives On, Evan, a.k.a. E-A-L. Why is it I'm only ever on for holiday-themed episodes? Uh, lucky coincidence? A nice bonus? Or maybe part of the unexpected twist of the story tonight? Hmm. If I'm the first one to die, I'll know it's because of this trend. Ooh. Don't give it away. <laughs> Uh, But um, all joking aside, uh, thank you both for joining us tonight. You know, what is funny, uh, if anybody who hasn't listened to last year's episode, uh, what's funny is that this year we have almost the exact same group that uh, we did for our first Halloween episode. Uh, Unfortunately, we just weren't able to have Platy tonight because he's been a bit uh, tied up at home and a bit of a mix-up with the vacation he went on and everything. So unfortunately, he's he's, uh, a little preoccupied. Uh, We'd also like to give a shout-out to Matt Craft, who was going to join us tonight, uh, but was called off to work. Uh, so before we get started, we should probably give uh, Matt Craft a quick, na- a quick little nickname too for our uh, Treehouse of Horror reference names. What do you guys think? Should we call him Moaning Matt Craft mm. or Mysterious Matt Craft? Oh, Matt Crafty, the Matt Craft that came from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Matt Witchcraft. Matt Witchcraft. There we go. Nice, nice. All right. Well, there we go. And Platy's just Platy. He didn't get a special nickname. <laughs> <laughs> he was too busy being on. All right. Well. Now that we've gotten all the introductions out of the way and we can get this spooky show on the road. Uh, but before we jump into the movies and the shows we want to talk about tonight, uh, why don't we just talk about a few things that we've been enjoying this month? Uh, you know, October, a lot of people like to enjoy spooky things, like to check out new, um, either new or old uh, Halloween specials that they might have seen before, or haven't seen before. 
you know, everybody has different Halloween traditions. So, um, why don't we start with you, Evan? Are there was there anything this month that you decided to check out, uh, games or otherwise, for the spooky month of October? Well, very conveniently, uh, I've mentioned before in the past, uh, the Alan Wake remaster uh, came out this month. So I've been dumping, di- <laughs> diving into that for a third time. I was hoping this time maybe I'll actually try going for a platinum trophy since um, it's actually pretty reasonable. There's a couple weird things in there like go through this area without dying um do this section in 30 minutes but usually you can kind of just drop the difficulty to easy and i i think it'd be pretty simple um other than that it's all just collect all the items find all the things play on the hardest difficulty um and i've i've played the game a bunch of times and i've i've given nightmare difficulty a try a few times and it's not too hard there are some areas that kind of get me uh one of the only really big criticism i have of the game is uh, alan's run is very bad and so running away isn't very good and so even though the game kind of tells you hey if you're in a sticky situation why don't you run away and try to get to the nearest you know safe haven and i was like well because alan gets four feet and then he's huffing and puffing and he's running slower than normal and i'm being (laughs) I'm being chased by uh, by enemies, so uh, that's not a very good strategy. Uh, but yeah, uh, great game. It's actually one of my favorite games. It uh, kind of takes me back to the days where you didn't have to cycle through a million menus, uh, have to memorize all these different things. They kind of just give you every weapon and item you're going to use uh, in the first like two, two, three episodes of the game. Like before you even even hit the halfway mark, you kind of know how to do everything, and, have, and you've kind of used everything as well. Uh, kind of. I kind of think back to when I tried playing Witcher 3 and seeing all the mechanics and how massive the world was and just being like, oh my god, there's just so much. It's like a full-time job just trying to learn to play this game for a couple hours. But with Alan Wake, I can just jump right in. They give you a gun. They give you a flashlight. Um, I really love the gunplay. It's mostly because the snap, the, the pop 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 of firing gun and how you don't have to do much aiming. The flashlight does most of the aiming for you. So if you're pointing the flashlight at an enemy, you've pretty much also already got your gun aimed and there's not much, you can kind of react really quickly and they blow into a big explosion of light. So it's just a very, it's a lot of fun shooting people in this game. But the uh, basic story, I don't want to go too far into it, but the basic story is you are a, uh, a writer who is taking vacation with his wife in a sort of Twin Peaks type town, a small town in the mountains. And... Uh, when you guys settle into your log cabin, uh, she suddenly disappears and you wake up uh, in a your crashed car in the woods. And all of a sudden you're being attacked by random strangers. And you pretty much go around uh, chasing the darkness away with the flashlight, making it so you can kill them, run around, forget what, what happened to your wife. Pretty simple, but what I love is that it the story is very simple, but there's a lot to... If you if you play it first, you got a good idea. But if you play it a second time, you know how everything goes. You can pick up on the, all the little details and clues they left along the way. And there's just a lot to dissect about little bits and pieces of this game that is so short. It's only like 8 to 10 hours max to go through the whole thing. And so it's a very good, quick game to play for Halloween. And I actually think it's... Um, it's actually not very scary. The enemies nine times out of ten announce that they're about to appear, so you're not you can be jumped, but they're coming at you very slowly, and you have time to react at least for when they're first attacking you, and you're given lots of tools to keep them away from you and regroup. So you're never really at a true disadvantage 
And if you're playing on normal difficulty, you'll, you'll never find yourself in a position where you don't have enough ammo, batteries, what have you. Um, you always have options on normal difficulty, and there's very little jump scares or frightening images or anything like that. And you talk to a lot of NPCs. You, I mean, there's, only, there's really one period where it's just mostly you by yourself. And it's kind of in the middle of the game. It's a very long stretch. But from then on, you're spending time with other characters most of the time, you're, you actually have another person with you towards the second half of the game. So I feel like it's like a good game if you're prone to being scared uh, and you just want to play a spooky game without being super scared. Hmm. Yeah, this is one that I saw that they remastered it, and it's kind of one I wanted to check out, too, mainly because I've just been in the mood for those kind of games again. And with, um, credit, credit where it's due, it's also a cheap remaster. It's no Skyward Sword where they are charging you $60. It's only... <laughs> it's only it's only $30. I'm sure by Black Friday, it'll be $20. It probably will be. Hey, it'd be a good time to get it then. Because I, I, I feel like with spooky and like like horror-themed stuff, you know, I think that it kind of fits for both October and November. You know, both kind of the fall season, both yeah, have the same sort of vibe to them. It does Even when you get to Thanksgiving, you're kind of pushing it a bit with that, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one legit criticism is people say, oh, you spend too much time in the woods. Um, I wouldn't say you spend too much time in the woods. It's just that you don't spend a lot of time in the town. The, the game really wants you to, it does feel like a very lived in town, but you don't spend a lot of time in it. There's a section that you spend maybe 30, 40 minutes in actually doing combat. Um, and you do talk to a bunch of people. And there's actually like, if you you can sometimes find radios. If you turn them on, you can listen to like the radio show that's playing uh, while you're roaming around. While you're roaming around for a bit, so it, the, the the world does feel like somewhat lived in. But I feel like it would have done to have more time in the actual town areas. There's like you're in a park, but it's but you're by yourself for the most part. Um, you go to uh, spoiler alert, a mental hospital for a little bit. But for the most part, like it's it's people say it's a lot of forests. It's really just one area that's forests, and it's a very long stretch, so people feel like it is. But there's a lot there's a lot of diversity to location. I feel. Hmm. Well, that is good to know. I kind of figured with the previews I'd seen of the game that it was kind of mainly going to take place in more of an isolated forest, maybe small town area. But you know, it's good hearing some like firsthand impressions from that game and. You know. Well, there, there, there is you do. There is a lot of isolation to it, but like I said, um, there's there's a decent amount. Occasionally, there'll be a cutscene splitting it in half, mm -hmm. so that so like a level will take place in a forest, mm -hmm. and then uh, there's a split, and then now you're in a you know a log cabin area, or there's a split in one area, and you're at a hospital. Mm -hmm. Then you're in a farm, and this character is sometimes not the whole way through talking to you. Uh, you do occasionally have someone along with you who's assisting you, not all the time. But for for the most part, it's I feel like it gets the isolation aspect a lot, especially when there's a part where Alan ends up at, I want to say, a gas station. And he kind of feels like, he says to himself that he, he feels like he's in such an otherworldly place right now that finding these pockets of civilization, even though there's no one there, kind of feels like a relic from another world or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, definitely one that I'd like to check out at some point. I don't know about Pendy, but uh, speaking of you, though, Pendy, uh, what if sort of a spooky things have you been enjoying this month? So I was going to be a smartass and just say, like, uh, the movies for this podcast. But when I really, 
<laughs> when, I, when I really thought about it, I actually have done uh, something else that was Halloween themed. Um, I've been playing Dragon Quest Tech, and they actually did a Halloween event, which was centered around a, a uh, Dragon Quest X character named Valencia, and they did a special. They made a special spooky Valencia character that you could recruit, and that's also involved in like the event storyline. So basically, uh, you heard rumors of. Uh, this thing called Halloween because the characters in the game had never seen or heard of Halloween before and they're trying to investigate like what it's all about. But they hear rumors that this uh, spooky Valencia is making cookies. She's baking cookies, but they're, the rumor is that she's actually uh, killing off monsters and, and, and baking them into cookies. So you go and, and investigate that. You find out that that's not actually the case, and she, you know, t shows you how to decorate for Halloween and all the different traditions and stuff like that. And like these little spooky uh, cookies are actually like the event uh, currency that you can collect to trade in for like items and things like that. So it was it's fun. It was a nice little Halloween event. I I saw that in Japan. I think they're actually doing another Halloween event. They actually have a character where it's like a, a king slime, but he's got a big uh, ghost costume on, and I think it's a character that you can use. So I don't know if they're going to have that. Uh, outside of Japan too, but if they do, that'd be that'd be cool as well. So that's what I've been up to with my Halloween themed games and movies. What about what about you, Yangus? You know, it's funny you talk about um, Dragon Quest Tech doing that sort of event where they're like, "Oh, what's Halloween?" Because freaking uh, Saga Reuniverse has done the exact same thing with their Halloween event, where the characters are like, "What's this thing? What's Halloween? Why do you gotta dress up in costumes?" <laughs> I think that there must be like some sort of like contract at Square Enix where it's like if you make anything Halloween themed, you have to have all your characters question what Halloween is. <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense for Tact because like the whole background for Tact is that there used to be a human world uh, in the universe that it takes place in, and that they these humans used to interact with the monsters mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more, but they've kind of all disappeared, and you're kind of investigating uh, why this is taken place so you you're not as the the monsters that are left and the hero characters are just not as familiar with uh, like what what uh, human things did we uh did we used to do in the past so like a lot of this stuff is new for all the monsters like oh what is this thing this is christmas what is this like the so a lot <laughs> yeah. of events kind of center around that kind of idea yeah yeah i like saga universe has done that sort of exact same thing like both with christmas and with other stuff but um uh so yeah talking about saga universe uh that's one of the things for halloween i've kind of been getting into um thank you for share, uh, sharing that too by the way pendy um uh but yeah there i've been doing a little bit of that halloween event that's going on right now um in saga universe but the main thing that i've been trying to do this month is i've actually been trying to play some uh horror or scary themed games uh that i've been meaning to check out and the big one that I've checked out this year, which I've owned this one for a few years now, is Resident Evil 7 on my PS4. So uh, usually when it comes to like the October, November season, I try and check out more like spooky stuff, uh, especially the older I've gotten, the more I've tried to do that more and more just because there's even though it's not really a genre that I'm like super well versed into it's always one that's fascinated me. And I'll talk about that a bit more too, how that kind of started with um, my shows I'm going to talk about tonight. But for gaming, uh, like I've really taken an interest in stuff like Silent Hill with how it presents its horror versus uh, something like Resident Evil, where it how it presents like its scary elements. And I decided that this year, you know, I really wanted to tr check out Resident Evil 7 for a long time. It looked like a really different take on Resident Evil uh, versus what some of the last few games have been. So I'm like, you know, I want to check this out because I've heard I heard nothing but good things. 
I don't remember what what year it was, but I ended up picking up uh, the gold edition of the game, which apparently came with all the DLC and stuff like that. I just bought whatever version was on sale at Best Buy at the time. So um, I picked it up and I decided to start it up um, about two weeks ago, I believe, is when I first played it. And, you know, I was actually really impressed by the game. Like, it, there were a lot of times where the game did a good job, like, giving me that sense of, like, dread or being like, ooh, I don't know if I want to go, you know, any further. Yeah, you, you kind of have that feeling like something's going to happen. And with the, with the way the sound design is, there's a lot of times where the sound effects will kick in and you'll hear something or you'll hear, like, you hear, like, the house creaking or, like, the pipes making, like, a banging noise. But then you have times, too, where you'll hear something, but then nothing happens. So it's interesting that this Resident Evil game had elements of, like, some of the past Resident Evils where, you know, there's enemies that can, like, pop up and surprise you. But then it also included some elements of other horror uh, games, like uh, Silent Hill, for example. Because you guys have ever watched anything about Silent Hill. They love to do that sort of thing a lot, where you'll hear, like, a strange noise or... You'll interact with something, there's some sort of reaction, but then there's nothing that pops out, like no monsters, no nothing, like nothing hurts you, it's just something bizarre happens. And that's yeah, how so it's got, got more of like a like a spooky atmosphere to it. Yeah. And that's kind what I was really enjoying about like that's one of the things I try and look for a lot when I play games too, is that if I can get really absorbed in that, and that's really what kept me going uh in Resident Evil Seven and a Really, what kept me going, too, was just how darn creepy the game could get. When you're being stalked around the house by um, the Baker family, that can fill you with some pretty good dread. I haven't felt that in a while with playing a game. Because, you, you like, the first member of the family you really encounter is Jack Baker. Oh, my gosh, he is just resilient. He just keeps coming after you no matter what you do to the poor guy. <laughs> I mean, there I won't go, go into, like, too many story details, but, and, but you do learn why uh, these people are able to keep getting back up, why they're changing so much. It does a good job tying into, you know, some of the other elements of past Resident Evil games. But the nice thing is, too, is that with this game, you know, I didn't play Resident Evil uh, 5 or 6. Just I just didn't have any personal interest. But I was able to get into the game and you like you start with an entirely new character named Ethan Winters. Uh, you know, no relation to any of the past characters whatsoever. He's just a normal guy who is trying to find out what happened to his wife who disappeared a few years ago. Uh, he goes off into Louisiana to try and... Uh, uh, find her at this uh, address that she sends him from her personal email. And that's like, he's, he's just a regular guy trying to make his way through all this madness and try and save his, uh, uh, missing wife of three years. I was really, I really, a lot of missing that. wives lately, huh? Yeah. I think that must've started a trend or something. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe Alan Wake did. I don't know. <laughs> maybe like everyone's wives are either dying or going missing in video games. Yep. It's a, uh, it's, it, well, you know, it's a trend that comes that's along that's uh going a long way. We could probably list a bunch of games that have that sort of thing. Because <laughs> heck, even Dragon Quest V back in the day had that word, uh, disappearing mom slash wife. <laughs> but um, yeah, Resident Evil Seven, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I've been playing a lot of the extra stuff now that I've beaten the main game. I'm actually close to getting the platinum on the game. There's just uh, a few more of the harder trophies I have to try and get. But I'm just. I've really just been taking my time with the game, and I've really enjoyed it. And I, it's definitely one I'd recommend if you're looking for, you know, a good, like, spooky atmosphere sort of game. And, uh, you know, for as someone who's really not big into first-person shooter-style games, I really enjoyed how Resident Evil 7 handled itself. I would definitely say, like, if you're first time playing it, though, just be prepared uh, for the basement area, because that part just, that almost killed my enjoyment of the game entirely. I, until I finally got through it. it's That's probably like the biggest difficulty spike in the game. Uh, and unfortunately, it's towards the beginning of it. But if you can get past that, then you'll find that the game, 
you know, it's a little bit more uh, balanced for how it hands out stuff. And, you know, if you're someone who really likes to pay attention to the details, you can end up finding a lot of us um, extra bullets, a new shotgun uh, right away at the beginning of the game. So you have a stronger weapon. Uh, you can find these little antique coins that you can use to give yourself some new upgrades. Uh, so there, there's a lot to really look out for in this game. And it's one that I found uh, to be worthwhile to take your time and just explore every nook and cranny of the house and the rest of the estate as well. But I think we need to get a move on from all of our uh, games because we're here to talk about movies and shows. So let's movies. get things. Let's get <laughs> Let's get things started here. Uh, Pendy, did you want to start us off tonight? Yes. So I will start off with uh, The Shining. So The Shining was a movie released in 1980, directed by the late, great Stanley Kubrick, who is also famous for such films as Dr. Strangelove, Full Metal Jacket, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. It stars Jack Nicholson as a writer writer hired to take care of the opulent Overlook Hotel during its off-season. It turns out the hotel is haunted, and it slowly... It drives Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Torrance, into the depths of insanity. Once he snaps, he attempts to murder his wife and child that he has brought with him to the hotel. His child, Danny, has what's called The Shining. It's the title of the movie. <laughs> uh, Danny's shining Don't you, ability... What do you mean The Shining? The, uh, did, hey, shh, You, you want to get sued? You got the shining, boy. <laughs> uh but uh, Danny's uh, shining or shining ability enabled him to talk to people telepathically and see visions of the future. Before the, ho- the hotel staff vacates, he meets the head chef Dan Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, who also has the shining ability. It's he who gives the power its name in the movie, which came from a nickname his grandmother gave to it. You may also remember Scatman Crothers as the voice of Jazz from the original Transformers cartoon. Uh, the movie is a classic horror masterpiece. There are so many memorable images in the film, whether it be the creepy twins that show up, the elevator full of blood, Danny's vision of red rum, or Jack Nicholson's electric performance as a man gone mad. He has many iconic lines, such as when he uses an axe to fashion a bathroom door and declares, here's Johnny, a take on the famous late <clears throat> late night talk show host Johnny Carson. Fun fact about those doors that he takes an axe to. The prop people did not realize that Nicholson was a trained reserve fireman, so they kind of built him pretty light. But his technique was so good that he chopped through them all too quickly and they had to go back and make more reinforced doors to complete that scene uh that was a fun thing i learned from that's hilarious that was great (laughs) Uh, he's just he was too good at it uh but i learned that from stanley kubrick's daughter who did a short documentary on the making of the film when she was on the set uh back when she was a teenager uh the movie is a perfect buildup of suspense terror creepy imagery, and a masterful performance of someone slowly going insane. Uh, This movie was adapted from a Stephen King novel of the same name. What's interesting is that as much as this movie is loved today, Stephen King does not like it at all. (laughs) He hated it when they they changed for the movie. Like, I'd heard about that in the past. Yeah, I'd heard about it in the past that, like, he didn't like it back when it came out. But I I, I also heard a rumor that, like, he kind of came around on it. But that's not really the case. I, I saw a recent interview from 2016 with him about it. Yeah, he still does not like it. <laughs> really? He still doesn't like it years later? Still doesn't like it. He thinks there are some great performances, particularly by uh, Jack Nicholson, and some striking imagery. But he believes there's no heart to the movie. Uh, he compared it to a beautiful-looking car. Which is car fair, no, to be honest. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, what are you saying, Pendy? He compares it to what? No, 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 that, it's fine. Uh, but that's, <laughs> I was just saying that he compares it to a beautiful-looking car with no engine in it. Uh, he, compared, <laughs> yeah, he compares how the, it was kind of a big burn, burn to it. And speaking of burn, he compares how the hotel burns down in the book but freezes in the movie. Basically, he's saying that the movie overall is kind of very cold compared to the book. Uh, what he didn't like the most was how uh, Jack and Wendy Torrance, the husband and wife characters, were changed. In the book, Jack Torrance is portrayed kind of um, as a warm character, down on his luck, struggling with alcoholism. And But from the start of the movie, Jack Nicholson's character is portrayed as a little cold, actually kind of a jerk uh, straight from the beginning. Uh, Wendy is also portrayed as a much more capable person in the book as she tries to survive her husband's growing insanity. Uh, but in the movie, she's portrayed as someone much more passive and kind of even tolerant to his abuse that gets thrown at first. Uh, another big difference is that the Dan Halloran character, the head chef, uh, actually gets murdered in the movie. When everything starts to go sideways, uh, Danny calls for calls for him uh, telepathically, and he shows up, but he's murdered by Jack. But in the book, he survives. So now the, the movies have been referenced and parodied in many, many works of media. You see it all the time. It gets referenced because it's so, so famous and, and iconic. Uh, the, most refer- the, uh, the most recent reference I can think of was the big section that they did in the movie Ready Player One that was dedicated to it. But I think the best reference that was ever used was in the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror season six episode. One of the three segments that they did for that show was a full-on parody of the Shining movie where the Simpsons take care of the famous haunted hotel. In the movie, it's all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. That's the thing that he keeps typing over and over and over on his typewriter once he snaps. But in the Simpsons, Homer says, no beer, no TV make Homer go something, something. And Marge asks, go crazy? And Homer replies, don't mind if I do. And then he proceeds to make some of the funniest sound effects and faces ever seen on that show. Homer also does some fantastic alternate takes to Here's Johnny as he axes in through the door, including a nod to David Letterman. But I think the best is when he says, I'm Mike Wallace, I'm Morley Safer, and I'm Ed Bradley. All this and Andy Rooney tonight on 60 Minutes. It's just goofy. It's, it's great. <laughs> uh, another thing that I love is I love how Willie is the Halloran character in the movie, The Head Chef. In the movie, Halloran's bedroom is, if you remember, is very provocatively decorated with the, the women that are kind of on the wall around his bedroom. Uh, you know, if you know what I mean, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Uh, but it, what was great is that they did a similar setup for Willie, except that everything was Scottish themed. So that was a nice touch. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, though my favorite moment is at the end when Homer is chasing the family to kill them, but then they distract them with a portable TV that they find. And <laughs> He's looking at the TV and he's like, urge to kill. Fading, fading, fading. Rising? Fading, fading. God. I, I love that part of that part of the end. It's great. Come, uh, family, join me in television's warm, glowing, warming glow. Oh, yeah. The lines of that parody are so great. All of them are, are, are awesome. I uh, always love the uh, feeling fine. It's the feeling, <laughs> not feeling. <laughs> feeling fine. Feeling? Oh, oh that's a relief. <laughs> oh, yeah, everything's great. And then it, it starts flashing, and then you see all the no beer, no TV, make Homer go crazy. Just written all around the uh, all around the room. That was a great touch. That was great. I love when he's talking to uh, Mo when he first wants to get a beer, and Mo's like, we got to kill your family. Well, why should I do that? We'll be more happier that way. We well, don't look so happy. I'm very happy. La, 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 la. Go kill your family. You don't get a beer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, oh, yeah. a great episode. Yeah, Moe's a bartender in that. That was perfect. That was great. Yeah, that that was good, too. I, I liked how, um, you know, from, besides Mo being, you know, a bartender in the actual show, that they were able to, you know, fit him in so well into that segment and keep it the, you know, the strange vibe where Jack is, see- well, um, you know, Homer is seeing, like, um, the visions of ghosts and stuff, like what Jack Nicholson uh, slash Jack, uh, the character from The Shining, you know, sees at that particular point of the story. I, th- oh, yes. I, I do I do think that is one of the things about uh, The Shining that I do like is that part of me wonders, and I, I haven't read the book, so and I, it's been a while since I've seen this movie as well, um, but I don't remember if it said that... Um, the place was haunted. I know it's like was built on an ancient burial ground. Yeah, but I I feel like part of it is like is that uh, Jack's character was seeing things. His mind was starting to play tricks on him, probably from being in isolation with just his family in this big abandoned building. But that part of it too could be the supernatural portion of it as well, since you know Stephen King does like to kind of mix that into his stories as well with a lot of supernatural elements. Yeah, basically the the house is kind of like its own character. And they established that in the movie, but even more so in the book, I mm. think. Yeah, the um, the book was more interested, I felt, in exploring Jack's alcoholism. Just the fact that you can hear what the characters are thinking in their heads. I think it wanted to, because Stephen King was struggling with alcoholism himself at the time, it felt like he wanted to portray Jack as a, a troubled man, but a man who was ultimately trying to do right by his family. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas the movie just has him kind of a as a creepy weirdo the whole way through, and his alcoholism seemed kind of more of a like a, a catalyst than anything. Yeah, definitely. So, so, with that, with The Shining, what better place to go next than the sequel? EAL has that for us next. What you got? Not a lot of people know, but there is actually for real a sequel called Doctor Sleep. It only came out about eight years ago. Too. What? 2013, I want to say it was. I read it like 2014, so it's, it has been a very long time since I read the book itself. So my memory's a little bit spotty on it, but I do remember that the the movie that came out two years ago did do a couple changes. So this was kind of a weird thing. I'm going to try to avoid spoilers because it, it is a recent book and movie. So I don't want to go, this happens at the end, that happens at the end. But since, you know, The Shining is like a 40, 50 year old movie, I think it's okay to say, you know, Danny survives, Jack doesn't, Wendy survives. But the interesting thing is the the this, this movie, the movie version of Doctor Sleep was in this weird position where they were adapting a sequel to a book, which had a movie that was so not drastically different, but it had a lot of differences to it. One of the key ones being that Dick Holleran dies in the movie. He actually survives in the book. Um, And also the uh, Overlook actually burns down in the original book. It's still standing in the movie. And so I was kind of surprised when I watched the movie, Um, aside from changing a lot of really key end stuff, like, like, they cut out a lot of stuff in the beginning and middle just to make it a more tight movie. It is a 500-page book. The end part is like to- is like not totally, but it's drastically changed from how the original Doctor Sleep book ended. I would actually say the change is more dramatic in Doctor Sleep than it is between Shining book and movie, just by how much they changed. Like, a lot of big character reveals are totally different, so I actually think you can read the book and watch the movie and still feel like you got something unique out of it. So if you watch the movie first, 
you know, you don't have to feel like you're wasting your time and reading a 500 page book because there's just a lot of little things here that are different. And I, w one thing I really appreciated about this movie was they didn't try to CGI Jack Nicholson's face. And I think for the most part, they got actors that looked similar and they kind of went for their own vibe, but weren't necessarily trying to totally ape uh, each other's character. I would say the actress they got for Wendy, who is quite honestly very spot on. If you watch the Doctor Sleep movie and look at the actress they got for Wendy, you you would think that was uh, the original actress. Um, oh, I think I, I think. I think she's like the only one who is really trying to imitate her character, but everyone else is kind of going for their own interpretation of their character from the book, which I really appreciated. But the, the book is about an adult, Dan Torrance. He is down on his luck. Uh, he's kind of drifting around. Uh, he's kind of succumbed to uh, what his father succumbed to. He's become angry and he's become a drunk. And he's really just trying to find a place to settle down and fix himself. And what he does, he ends up finding a town and he becomes... He becomes... Oh, geez, what was he again? He worked at a hospice where he uses his shining powers to help the elderly and dying patients uh, pass on peacefully. Which I thought was a really nice way of using that character's ability, considering how he... When you watch The Shining and read The Shining, it's such a, not a sinister power, but it's used for sinister ends. And so I just think it was really cool that he got to use it for a better thing. But the, the legacy of the Overlook Hotel continues. And he, as a child, was still being haunted and harassed by the ghosts at the Overlook. And so Dick Holleran taught him a special skill where he basically locks the ghosts in these mental boxes and seals them away and push them to the side. Sort of, he's like sort of forcing himself to bury his problems. And I think that's kind of where the alcoholism came. You, you know, you think of a lot of times when media portrays an alcoholic, it's someone who is trying to push aside their problems or forget something. And clearly Danny, more than most people, is someone who needs to push aside and forget all of his problems. I really appreciated how, because I read The Shining and then jumped pretty immediately into Doctor Sleep, there is a chapter at the very beginning that has, it's it's pretty much The Shining happened and then this happened. And this whole section is just what happened sort of immediately afterwards, a couple months afterwards. And it, it really felt like I was still reading The Shining, even though it's a sequel to a 30 40 year old book uh, at the time it still really felt like i was reading the same book and then after that it jumps into then modern day and it feels like its own beast completely new story uh with only one character really carrying over it which is danny every other character uh who survived is now passed on and what i thought was really cool was how they still try to expand the mythos by creating an enemy and in this book, you have these like psychic vampires that are feasting on the steam that comes off of people with the shining when they die. So you have to kill these people, and the shining kind of comes out as a steam, and they and these vampires suck it up because it acts as a sort of it sort of makes them immortal. Basically, they live forever if they continue to consume this steam. And so Danny and a new person who's emerged with an even stronger shining are being pursued by the psychic vampires. And he kind of takes on a mentor role for this new young child and teaches her how to control and live with her powers. And I just thought it was a, it was a really good use 
of that character. I felt like he he goes through so much in the book and the movie that you kind of want him to succeed. You want everything to be okay for him, but you know it won't. And I like that Stephen King was willing to give him issues, give him problems, things to overcome, and find a way to uh, sort of course correct his life after the tragedy that happened to him with his father. And I feel like it, I feel like you can the the movie, the Doctor Sleep movie adaptation. It's in this interesting position where they're, like I said, they're trying to be a sequel. They're trying to make an adaptation of a book that had a sequel. To, it just the the Shining movie is just so different from the book in s- subtle ways and in big ways. And this Doctor Sleep movie had to adapt all those subtle changes into it. So one of the big changes in the Shining was that the Overlook is still standing at the end of the movie but not the book it is still standing in dr sleep the movie but not the book uh like i mentioned dick holleran appears alive in a scene in the dr sleep book but he is dead at the start of the movie in a similar scene but he doesn't really need to this sounds weird he doesn't really need to be alive for this scene so he was it was very easy to slot into the Doctor Sleep movie also likes to make subtle references. That's okay, maybe not subtle because they just straight up do the <laughs> uh, the blood coming out of the elevator scene, and the character who's watching it is like, please, like it's like a whatever thing. But I, for the most part, it tries to like take all the images from the Shining movie uh, and try to get it into this sequel but without trying to imitate the style it tries yeah. to it's it's like you mentioned how stephen king said the original shining uh movie was a lot was very cold and didn't yes. have a lot of heart this movie kind of makes up for it in that it feels very warm and comfortable even though so much horrible stuff is happening in it it, it just feels like it's sort of a you get a big exploration of danny it doesn't feel like it's trying to it felt like every character was properly represented as they were in both the Shining book and Doctor Sleep book. So I feel yeah. like oh, you're gonna say. Oh, I was just gonna say that's uh, it's interesting that the the movie Doctor Sleep decided to take on elements of the movie The Shining. I, I figured when I first heard about it that they would just ignore the movie, pretend it never happened, and just kind of go off the book. Um, but I th- yeah, it's, I think they're trying to kind of maybe cash in on the success and the, the notoriety of, of the original movie. And uh, to, so to, they decided to take elements from both. So that's really interesting that they did that to uh, kind of they didn't be like, do hey, a, this is didn't actually do- a sequel to the movie, too. But yeah, yeah it does kind of sound like they didn't like do a very good job of that, though. Oh, <laughs> they didn't do a very good job of that. It's not called, you know, Dr. Sleep, A Shining Story or The Shining to Dr. Sleep. It's just called Dr. Sleep. And these characters are, are, there's only one character in, if you watch a trailer, you really only see Danny and it's an adult man played by Owen McGregor. So really, you're, unless you're really paying attention, your brain is not registering that you're looking at a sequel to The Shining. Because who's expecting a sequel to The Shining in 2019? Like the book kind of fell off the radar. I only heard about it because I was reading the Wikipedia entry for The Shining because I had just finished reading The Shining, and I had seen that he was working on a sequel and that it was coming out. And I didn't see very much ads. I didn't. I, I remember I was researching the director, because I like the director's movies, and I just saw he's making a Doctor Sleep movie. There was no release date. There were a couple actors attached. I thought this will look good. 
And then I see a trailer for it like three months later with all this new information. It's got a poster, actor, more actors, uh, a release date. As It just kind of happened. It was very strange. And it was kind of just, I don't want to say it was dumped out because it wasn't. But I feel like, I mean, you said you didn't even know there was a sequel until recently. Yeah, I had- I yeah I, I when you just said it came out 2019 it's like whoa this is from that recently the wow. book came out in 2013 <laughs> and the movie came out like November 2019 you know very recently but huh. I know the pandemic makes it feel like it's been a million years since 2019 <laughs> but but it is well, it is a very recent movie well I didn't even know that Stephen King had written a sequel story to The Shining like when you were talking about Doctor Sleep and saying it had a sequel to The Shining I'm like well. That's weird. I never heard of that book before because I don't read a lot of Stephen King stuff, but I've read and know about a good chunk of his stories like It, The Shining, uh, you know, some more oddball stuff, too, like the Langoliers or the Tommyknockers. Ooh, the Langoliers. Like that. That's good, too. But, um, yeah, I've never heard of this Dr. Sleep one. So, I mean, it, it sounds like the movie adaptation is kind of mixed, but I mean, it, do, it does sound like an interesting take on things if they're showing like, a, if the, well, excuse me, if the story itself is showing Danny trying to help people with his shining powers instead of, you know, seeing nothing but like strange imagery and things like that. Like yeah, in the Shining. Yeah, Redemption. I actually was able to show it to my parents, the movie, who do not like horror, but they, I, they did see The Shining. So they were familiar with all these characters and all the references, like Red Rum, all that stuff. And it is actually, a, a it, it's more of an action movie, I want to say. Not really, but it's not a very scary movie. There is like kind of one really distressing scene that's supposed to go, oh, these people are fucked up. Danny's got to do something about this. These people are so messed up in the head. Um, there's one kind of gross thing very early in the movie that doesn't bother me because i've watched so much horror that my brain has totally been desensitized but the average person might find it a little iffy but for the most part it's not like it's not a scary movie particularly um by the time you go back to the overlook it's more it becomes more of an action movie to be honest um i i feel like any like normie person could probably if they had seen the shining could probably go right in and read read the book or watch the movie and still get a lot out of it. Is it probably more like a kind of more like a thriller kind of movie? I would I would say yeah, I would say it's kind of a horror thriller because I don't want to make it sound like there's constant action and there's right. lots of shootouts or anything, but there are scenes where characters are doing things and stuff's happening and it does show you a lot of the images from the last movie like the the naked woman uh blood in the uh you know elevator stuff like that does it show the does it show the man in the bear suit (laughs) it does not if only i wish um (laughs) and it's interesting that stephen king didn't like the shining movie for being so adaptive i understand why because it stripped out a lot of the heart um but dr sleep does a lot of adapting itself i mentioned they completely change the ending they change an important reveal for a character. Um, they remove a bunch of characters. Um, there's a character who's kind of like, he's not a villain, but he's kind of antagonistic against Danny. And that character has its own his own arc. And the way he, Danny reacts to him at a certain point in the book isn't important, but it's, it is like, it kind of shows how he's changed and grown. And they completely cut that character out. His, his... There, there was just a lot of changes overall made, I think, because of how much was cut from the original Shining movie, because 
the Shining book had a lot of it did it, it introduced you to more of the characters by name, like you know the name of the original, you know the original owner and or whatever or the founder of the Overlook, you know characters' names. It's more interested. The original book is more interested in exploring the history of yep. the Overlook Hotel, and they had to excise any reference to that in the movie for Doctor Sleep. So that it, it fits better with the movie The Shining. Um, before I forget, a another good title to uh, check out in the whole Shining universe, <laughs> the Shining <laughs> cinematic universe, <laughs> is uh, uh, if you haven't checked it out before, the, um, Stephen King decided like, oh, I don't like this movie, so I'm just going to do uh, my own version of it. So they did like a three episode miniseries of The Shining, and it uh, follows the book very closely. And it's really good. It's it's very good. It has a lot of, like I said, it follows the book very closely. Like one of the big differences, another one of the big differences between the movie and the book. And this had more to do with the fact that it'd be too hard to pull off those special effects uh, convincingly back in 1980. But like in the book, like instead of a hedge maze, maze, it's like these topiaries where these hedges are like shaped like animals and they come to life and try and chase them down, stuff like that. So they've got that in the TV miniseries and like the, the character... Uh, has like a croquet mallet that he's trying to kill everybody with instead of an axe. He's got like the famous line from the book where he's like, "Come get your medicine," and and while he's chasing around everybody, so like uh, it's very it's very good. So if you if you haven't seen it before, the the Shining miniseries uh, it follows the book very closely, and it's it's worth a look as well. Hmm. I will say before we wrap up on the Shining and Doctor Sleep, um, there is a. There is a guy who plays Jack for very briefly, and he is played by the boy from E.T. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the director, he he works a lot with Henry Thomas, who is the boy from E.T. So he's been in a lot of, he's been in a lot of horror stuff recently. He's been in Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor. Uh, he was just in Midnight Mass that came out on Netflix. I was just about to say that series. Like when I, I just had watched that not that long ago, uh, Evan. And when I was he, looking I, up the cast I, list, I'm like, oh my god, stuff. that's Elliot from freaking E.T. <laughs> yeah, he's been in most stuff by the same director of the Doctor Sleep movie. Um, what was it? He was in... He was also in Gerald's Game, which was also a Stephen King adaptation. And he was also in Ouija Origin of Evil, which was a sequel to a horrible, or a prequel, I guess, to a horrible generic Ouija movie. Oh my god, they made a sequel to that thing? <laughs> it, it was a prequel, and actually, I'm gonna say it, it's pretty legit. If you have, If you thought the first movie was terrible, I would say actually watch Origin of Evil. I think that was what it's called, Ouija Origin of Evil. Um, I, it, I remember it was when, actually, that, when that first one came out. It's like they're doing a movie based off a of Ouija board. <laughs> oh yeah, it was. It was. It was pretty. It was pretty scary, actually. It was pretty decent. I felt like it was. It was kind of taking the standard haunted house horror movie, but it gave it a little bit more. I don't know, it gave it a little bit more style. Not style, like it's so stylized or anything, but it felt like it had a little bit more heart, more to, not necessarily to say, but it's hard to describe. It, it was just very well put together, I guess would be a good way of saying it. And I thought especially Henry Thomas as uh, his character was like very compelling. I was like, wow, the kid from Eats, he's a really good actor for some reason. Mm. 
Yeah, I um before we move on here, I one just this is a, a more of a parody of The Shining than an actual like serious thing related to it. But this uh these uh two guys made this quick little like like joke parody edit of the movie called The Chickening where <laughs> It, it's as dumb as it sounds by the title, but um, you, it used to be up on YouTube, but you can find it on this guy's websites. And unfortunately, I can't remember the name of said website, but if you go to Google, just uh, search the chickening, uh, shining parody, and you'll be able to find it. I won't give away everything that's in this little parody trailer that they made for it, but one of my favorite things is that they make uh, Danny, um, instead of him being a kid, he's just a short little mobster man. <laughs> like, they edit in a face, so, so he... He's talking like he's talking like this, like, hey, mom, bring me a chip, bring me that there sandwich, you know, things like that. And his little finger that, you know, is supposed to be the red rum voice. They make <laughs> they make that a character, too. Like whenever it zooms in on the finger, it's got a little top hat on. It's got like a it's got the same sort of voice where it's like, oh, oh God, what does he call the the. Is it Tony? Is he calls him that? Yeah, Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So whenever someone's like, "Well, who's Tony?" It, it zooms in on the finger with the face, and he's just like, "Who's Tony? Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> it's very, very dumb, but there and it gets a little raunchy too. Is some of the humor, a little bit of a stuff that's like, "What?" It's kind of gross, but it's a really, really goofy and really funny parody trailer for the movie. Like, it's just as silly as you can think, make it out to be. And like my favorite part of it too is that instead of it being a hotel that they're going to, it's now a giant um, KFC style restaurant that they're living in and taking care of. <laughs> so that's why there's like edited chickens all over the place. Like there's one scene where it shows a chicken sitting on uh, uh, Jack Nicholson's head when he's going in to check the bathroom for in that one scene, and there's just a chicken sitting on his head with some other chickens in the bathroom. It's very, very stupid, but it's very funny if you enjoy just like a that sort of surreal, like what the hell's going on kind of humor. <laughs> and um, I think on that note, are you guys uh, all wrapped up then with uh, the Shining Sleep? Oh yeah, that's turning into a uh, Shining cast over. It there. is. <laughs> we should have just made this the Stephen King episode. <laughs> <laughs> we could but, actually. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, before we end up actually doing that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, jump in here and talk about my first thing of the evening. Uh, instead of talking about um, movies, I decided I wanted to focus on TV shows. Uh, as I mentioned with um, we're talking about Resident Evil 7, uh, when I was younger, or excuse me, as the older I've gotten, I've started to check out more uh, horror slash scary themed stuff. Because when I was a little, because when I was uh, younger, I started getting uh, sort of into that and just being fascinated by that sort of thing. And really where that uh, started out was with uh, Courage the Cowardly Dog, uh, which was a Cartoon Network show uh, premiered in 1999 and was created by John R. Dilworth. Now, I could explain the premise of the show, but honestly, the show does that pretty well itself. So I'm going to let the announcer of the show take it from here for a few seconds. We interrupt this program to bring you Courage the Cowardly Dog Show, starring Courage the Cowardly Dog! Abandoned as a pup, he was found by Muriel, who lives in the middle of nowhere with her husband, Eustace Bay. But creepy stuff happens in nowhere. It's up to Courage to save his new home. Stupid dog, you made me look bad. 
All right, thank you, Mr. Announcer. All right, uh, the show uh, has a really good balance of humor and horror to it. Uh, you will have silly musical cues, uh, one of my favorites being the Battle Charge of Muriel, uh, when she attempts to save Courage from Eustace in one episode. Uh, charging at him with her rolling pin, you hear a trumpet go, and, a, and a, like an op operatic singer going, oh <laughs> um, uh, You have a bunch of silly objects, like overly sized um, things such as toenail, giant toenail clippers, uh, giant razors, uh, big pieces of food, a lot, a lot of comical sort of background pieces as well. And then, of course, one of the most well-known of them is uh, the Ooga Booga Booga mask that Eustace uses to scare courage. Uh, on the flip side, though, uh, the horror elements uh, came in from a lot of the supernatural, undead, and in some cases, completely normal-looking creatures uh, courage would encounter. Uh, there were characters such as Cats, who was one of the major antagonist characters of the series, uh, usually always appearing with some sort of scheme or some sort of way to trap people. Uh, actually, the very first episode he appeared in, he was running a hotel that uh, Eustace Muriel and Courage spend the night at, and one by one they start uh, getting kidnapped by him. I don't remember what his plan was for them. I believe it was just to feed his pet spiders, and you see various instances where all three of them run into the spiders and are either, either able to take them out or or just kind of stall them until Courage finally saves the day. Uh, you have other villains such as Le Quack, the the evil French duck who always has to say couscousé. Uh, there is the mobster foot fungus, which takes over Eustace in one episode and somehow is able to come back on its own uh, with uh, its recurring line and threat always being, well, the fat lady gets it, say. Uh, there's the Haunted Mattress episode slash the spirit of the Haunted Mattress, which is one of my personal favorite episodes of the series. Uh, you have creatures... Uh, more of, of the strange ones like the bananas from the future and probably one of the most infamous characters and episodes is um, Muriel's nephew Fred who is very naughty. Uh, this show makes a good use of an exaggerated art style for both the characters and the objects, which I previously mentioned. Uh, for the characters though, uh, you have some characters, uh, normally the monsters, sometimes uh, the other like random background characters as well uh, can have some really ex uh, exaggerated details, such as an elongated eye that sticks out of uh, one side of their head. Uh, sometimes they just have big old eyeballs. Like there's a fox character who tries to kidnap Muriel and turn her into his stew for the night. Where every time he takes off his sunglasses, he has just like comically oversized big googly eyes, like a almost like Cookie Monster. If you ever, you know, if you uh, seen what his eyes look like, just imagine those about like four times too big for his head. <laughs> uh, usually, there's also other things like um, like unusual colors for skin, fur, hair, things like that. And usually, all the characters have the ability to magically recover from any sort of damage that they take. So a lot like Looney Tunes logic. Uh, Courage is probably the best example of all of those. Uh, thanks to not only his pantomiming explanations, but the fact that Courage sometimes gets the crap beat out of him. There's one episode where, like, like basically the entire front half of his body gets ripped off. You just see his skeleton, and he always gives that iconic, like, <laughs> laugh whenever he can't, um, you know, he's laughing through the pain as best he can. Uh, however, even though there are some uh, very dangerous characters that constantly appear in the show, not all of them are evil, though. In fact, some of the episodes focus on friendly or misunderstood characters, uh, such as the Duck Brothers who have come to Earth and are trying to save uh, their other brother who's been kidnapped and is about to be turned into dinner. Uh, there is the giant space squid who wants to save her babies and keep them safe uh, until it's time for them to fly off into the stars themselves. Uh, the, there's the Hunchback of Nowhere 
who ends up living in the barn outside of Courage's house and becomes friends with him and has to constantly deal with Eustace making fun of him. And you have uh, a shadow, uh, a living shadow who has no purpose once he loses his um, owner slash person he was attached to. And he tries to scare others until Courage encourages, excuse me, until Courage gives him the idea to um, you know, go off and try and find his own uh, dream and fulfill that. So there is a nice balance between you know the silliness of the show and a lot of the horror elements. Uh, really, with the with the scary stuff of the show, like I remember as a kid, like and even now as an adult, when talking about the show with people, I get a lot of people tell me, "Oh, I couldn't watch that show; it was too dark." I just, you know, it's very creepy. It's just so surreal, and it definitely is. I, I will not deny that at all. But I find that that's part of what made me like the show so much was that it was such a strange. Um, you know, just such a strange cartoon at the time. You know, it's something that's really taken a risk, and I think it really paid off. Because this is a show that uh, I still remember so well years later. Like, there are just a ton of episodes that I could talk about. Like, even when I was um, thinking up topics for tonight's episode for shows I wanted to talk about, this is one of the first ones I thought of, because this was one where I could remember, like, pretty much what happens in, you know, almost every episode. Like, even the ones that are more lighthearted, I can remember ones that have, like, more of the creepy atmosphere to them. Like, if you want one of the episodes that can really creep a lot of people out, like the very last episode of the show, um, I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately, off the top of my head, but there is a sequence where uh, Courage keeps having these nightmares back to back. And the first one is of this strange 3D creature uh, that just looks at the camera and just like whispers, you're not perfect. And it just creeps him out to no end. Like it just like when Courage wakes up, normally he's, he has got, uh, you know, the more exaggerated cartoony screams and everything like that. But like the scream that they give him is one of just like such genuine fear. So I really have to give credit to uh, Courage's voice actor. And really, I have to give credit to all the voice actors from the show as well, because every one of them uh, did such a great job with their characters. Um, I I forget her name, unfortunately, but the woman who voiced uh, Muriel, she was uh you know, always such a great source of entertainment because one of the jokes with the, with the show is that Muriel is always so oblivious to everything that's going on, unless it's like staring her right in the face. And the woman who did her voice, uh, God bless her, she always did such a fantastic job making Muriel such a lovable old lady. Even at the times where you're just like, Muriel, look behind you. Look at that thing. <laughs> and um, to sidetrack real quick, uh, this, the voice actress who did voice Muriel actually played her up until... Um, she passed away. She actually was able to voice her for the last time in the recent Scooby-Doo uh, Courage the Coward the Dog crossover that they did, which if there, if there was a more fitting crossover, I couldn't tell you what it is because those two uh, having a crossover, even though years it's years after Courage the Coward the Dog was ever on TV, was still such a fitting uh, combination just because of the premise of the two shows and of the characters and everything. So I'm, I'm glad before she passed away that she was able to voice uh, the character one more time. And from what little I've seen of that crossover, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's definitely Muriel. You know, they, they captured that pretty well. Uh, but getting back to Courage itself, uh, there were a lot of episodes uh, from the show that really did creep me out as a kid. Uh, such as the one involving the Harvest Moon and the giant spirit that appears, which has this weird rotoscope um, effect to the person who... Like, a lot of the characters in the show would either be hand-drawn, there would be some where they're claymation, some where they use rotoscoping technology, others where they would use, like, green screen technology. Um, if you've ever seen, you know, the intro to uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, for example... There's the pirate that they always have at the beginning who's like, are you ready, kids? And they use that sort of effect where it's um, 
the rest of it's a painting, but the mouth is real. Like, it's a real person. And they use that effect as well. But, like, the Harvest Moon episode was one that always kind of creeped me out because there is a real sense of danger. Uh, you have the Sea Witch episode where this um, mysterious woman of the water keeps appearing to Eustace and eventually... Um, uh, seduces him to come to her world and is about to kill him and eat him before courage manages to save him at the last second. And you have another, like one of my episodes that still even creeps me out now is the one with the gerbil salesman that shows up who has these, again, like these uh, exaggerated products, kind of like a, um, a strange take on a door to door salesman who uh, ends up kidnapping Muriel and Eustace. He has this strange song constantly playing in the background. And then there's a chase scene between him and courage uh, going down river where there's no sound effects. There's no dialogue. It's just this um, quiet singing in the background as they're making this chase down the river. And even to this day, like it's something that I haven't seen too many shows, you know, do that well and like capture that sort of like tension without having to use a whole lot of sound effects or, or as far as animation goes, like having to use too many sound effects or anything like that. It's, this is a show that I think really a lot of things really worked well with how they handled, um, designing how they handled sound effects uh like everything really blended itself well to, well together and i think that's why all these years later the show has still stuck with me uh so well as it has from even when first seen as a kid uh some episodes you know they made me laugh some episodes kind of made me stop and think others creeped me out uh the show in my opinion was able to hit a lot of topics and styles pretty well and it and really i just think this just shows that there was you know a lot of um uh, from John L. R. Dilworth and his team that, you know, they wanted to capture sort of that strange style and show that, you know, that um, they could do these different ideas and topics. But, you know, they also kind of, I also felt they kind of knew that, you know, even if they did these episodes where, you know, things got a little scarier things, you know, they could also show, you know, a lighter side to some of these characters. And that's why I always enjoyed uh, whenever there would be a character who maybe seemed a little spooky or something like that, that uh, Courage would be able to befriend them. And I think that that was uh, really one of the strengths of the show. Um, Evan, you are about the same age as I am. Do you remember seeing the show at all? Did you watch Courage at all when you were growing up, too? I, I did, in fact, and I cannot believe you mentioned so many episodes and did not say King Ramsey's Curse. What's your offer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can still remember that ghost thing way off in the distance saying, oh, yeah. Return the slab. Or suffer That's... my curse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely not one of the other episodes that creeped a lot of people out. That's actually the one that I've heard the most people tell me that, you know, what turned them off from the show or made them, like, stop watching the show was well, that, that episode in particular. Well, me out when I watched it. Oh, see, I thought that episode was, I mean, that part was weird, but I thought the funniest part of that show was where... One of his curses was just that obnoxious song that's like King Ramsey, the man the gods, the man the gods. And it just it's just constantly playing in the background until Courage like happens to find the record player that's playing that song and he just stops it. <laughs> An episode that no one else seems to talk about, or at least I haven't ever seen, is that I think is one of my favorite episodes of the show, is uh, The Tower of Dr. Zalas. That's what that one is called. You know, I wanted to, I was trying to think of what episode that one was. I remembered it was The Tower, but I couldn't remember the doctor's name. Uh, why don't you tell us one about that, about, about that episode a little bit, Eel? Or Evan, excuse me. I don't remember, I don't remember it fantastically, but I do remember it was about, like, this like, weird, misshapen-looking doctor who's trying to hold uh, Nowhere hostage, basically, for, like, a comical amount of money. It was, like, s several billion dollars, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was like crazy high amount of money, like a like a Doctor Evil sort of amount of money. Yeah, and if he's not given it, he launches these cannonballs at uh, nowhere, and it hits uh, the farmhouse the Courage lives that makes everyone feel as depressed and miserable as he does. And I act, I kind of really liked the whole theme of the episode, how he just really needed someone to care about. And I kind of really liked how he, he, he finds a connection with his, what was it, a rat? Yeah, it was his um it was his rat psychic because every time he wanted rat? to uh, interact with him he'd be like rat rat come give me a hug. <laughs> it was very I thought it was like a very nice I thought I felt like it really encompassed the 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 vibes, the emotions that the show kind of wanted to portray. Everyone talks about like the animation of like the interesting animation techniques of all the episodes or the weird ways they try to scare people. Mm-hmm. But I thought like stuff like that weird, sad music that's playing while he's firing all those cannonballs at people mm-hmm. and how courage is able to, you know, get him to fix everything by, you know, making him feel better. Basically, you know, fi- you know, finding someone to care about essentially someone to love i thought that was like a really nice thing because in a way that isn't that kind of what where the deal with courage is how he he has to protect somebody yeah so um uh, first off I, I i do totally agree with you on that episode and unfortunately like i said i just couldn't think of the actual name of it when, when i was ta- uh, writing up my descriptions for tonight but that's definitely one of the standout episodes of the show too and that's also one of the few episodes where they use the entire half hour time slot yeah, it's part of the one, show part two. just for that particular episode sketch. Or not sketch, excuse me, for that particular storyline. They use the entire half hour instead of it being, um, you know, just an 11 minute short. There was that one, and then there was another episode that involved. Uh, a woman who wore a cat mask? Yes, that was, was the woman who wore the mask who hated dogs and needed uh, someone to help save That was like Bunny. another, like, I think most people love that episode the mm-hmm. most for the story. I don't remember anything about it. I don't think I even watched it the whole way through. But the imagery of the woman wearing, like, what was it? It was just a plain white shawl or whatever yeah. and a, a white mask. That yeah, so what cat, it was was that frame. she... Like, what it was was um, uh, in the show Courage, like, most of the animals that they show usually will be animal-shaped, but there's a few of them that are more, like, just, like, tall with, like, like elongated features, so about the size of a human. And this girl who uh, Eel was t- who Evan was talking about um, was uh, this cat girl who ended up coming to the farmhouse and staying with him for a while, and all she wore was, like, this white robe slash shawl with this giant... Um, not quite as oversized mask as like Eustace's Ooga Booga Booga mask, but like a large one with just like a, a happy face on it with lipstick and um, like um, eyelashed eyes for a woman, you know, just kind of a just a regular mask. But every time she would uh, show up on screen, she always would do something mean to courage. Like and then as you find out in the, in the story of that episode, uh, she has a real vendetta against dogs because her best friend Bunny um, was being abused by this, I believe it was supposed to be a pit bull or some sort of like dog that's stereotypically classified as being like an aggressive one. And Courage ends up um, going off to save uh, her and gets the two of them, or excuse me, gets Bunny out of there. The two of them end up running off. And, you know, finally the cat character was like, oh, you know, I've realized now that not all dogs are bad. 
you're one of the good ones, Courage. And it, it was definitely an interesting episode because that's one I remember <laughs> pretty vividly too. But um, I think it, I think it resonated with people because I think some people might have interpreted the relationship between the uh, two characters as queer coding. Like they were lovers or something. So I think people probably thought, oh, that was very daring of a kid's cartoon to have mm-hmm. something like that in a show from the early 2000s, even though they couldn't overtly say it. Well, see, I look at that one and, and see it more as like, you know, them trying to sneak in, like, you know, how abuse is, can really affect uh, relationships. Yes. So yeah, I, I, I definitely think like that's one of those stories that people can really interpret too. differently. I'm sorry, what were you saying, Evan? I was going to say, I do remember there was like an element of abuse in there, too. I don't... <laughs> I I don't think I ever watched the full episode the way through. I think I watched it one time, most of the way through, and then I watched watched it like a second time, the other half of the way through. So I watched it like I wa- I watched it in a weird thing where there was an overlap that I watched twice, and I watched the first half once and the second half once. It was mm-hmm. it was a it was a weird way of watching it. So I don't have a very strong memory of it. It wasn't an episode that I particularly you know loved or remember very fondly. But whenever I see people talk about episodes of Courage the Cowardly Dog, it's usually that one or uh, King Ramsey's Curse that I usually hear about the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are definitely some like infamous episodes from this show, which is why I brought up like the Cousin Fred one for, or the Nephew Fred episode from before, because that whole episode is just but pretty much 90 percent of the dialogue is told from Fred's point of view, and it's all in rhymes. And every time he gets done with one of the rhymes, he always ends up being like, very naughty. (laughs) I think that's actually one of the episodes, too, and one of those um, projects you can find on YouTube where it actually got, like, a full reanimated dedication to it. So, I mean, a lot of people obviously still, you know, care about courage a lot and i think even though um unfortunately the scooby-doo uh, courage crossover unfortunately didn't feature any like input from john r dilworth from everything that i've seen and heard people talk about with that it's pretty clear that the people who at least worked on it you know did have an appreciation for courage and tried to you know keep things sort of in line with that show and just tried to have fun with it like what uh, the guys did on the original you know run of the show i don't know if everybody who was involved with it excuse me with the crossover project from this year um you know if anybody uh who was on at that team worked on the original courage team i don't know that but from just from everything that i've seen and from what little i've heard people talk about it it does seem like um there there was some thought and love and care put into it and it wasn't just one of those things we're just like oh, just get it done with you know <laughs> at least at least that's my impression that i've gotten but um just to wrap up this courage section here, because I've been going on that one for a little bit, um, it's just like what Eel or Evan was talking about um, with the sound design of um, the King Ramsey song, and with uh, what was the other one you mentioned? I'm sorry, I can't remember. Uh, I think it's called Tower of Doctor Zola. Yes, the, the Tower episode with how you know there's that sad, depressing music when uh, t- the cannonballs are getting shot off into the town and everywhere. That was, I definitely think, one of the strongest design. Um, choices of courage is that they had such good sound design so many like memorable little jingles and like ones that could either you know invoke that emotion of sadness or ones that could like really do something silly like my favorite example of a silly one just to mention it real quick there's an episode where courage has to save uh, muriel from this hair growing factory where eustace's mom who is basically just a miniature version of him with a dress and a big poofy red wig on <laughs> she uh, ends up trying to chase courage down in this big pile of hair and as they're chasing each other she's got you know a comically oversized razor that she's going to cut all the fur off of courage up 
And as she's chasing him around, you hear this obnoxiously played version of um, Pop Goes the Weasel on an accordion, which perfectly fits just the silliness of the whole scene you're watching. So it's great that the, you know, the sound team for the show and the composers, you know, it, it's clear that they could have a lot of fun, but they also knew when to, you know, create a serious atmosphere. And I really think that yeah. there was so many great things about the show that just worked so well together and why so many people, uh, you know, like myself, I'm like, uh, Evan, you know, remember it so fondly. Uh, before we wrap it up, uh, Pindy, have you seen the show at all? Do you have any thoughts you want to throw in here before we move on? Oh, yeah. So I didn't really see the show that much uh, back in the day. That was around the time that I went to college and I kind of stopped watching a lot of uh, Cartoon Network at that point in time. But I actually was a big fan of the animated short film that the whole show was based off of. It was called The Chicken from Outer Space. It, w- it debuted in 1996. And it actually was nominated for an Oscar for uh, animated uh, short film. Uh, it actually uh, it didn't win. It lost out to a Wallace and Gromit short. But uh, I do remember the chicken from outer space. It was hilarious. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was about like a, this malicious space chicken who's bent on conquest of the world. But first, they he was starting out with trying to get the the uh, the two the two characters and the and the dog with the mutagenic eggs. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a fun short. And I've seen the show here and there, but not as much as as you guys have but it's it was a uh, it was pretty pretty fun the origin of the whole show was was a uh, pretty cool and then they went on a couple years later renamed it courage cowardly dog and then they had and then the history was made with that show that went on for a very long time mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it funny. feels so old i watched that short special uh when i was in preschool <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's well, funny too, Pendy, you mentioned in, uh, the, the pilot, the chicken from outer space, that character actually does show up, um, within the show itself. Like it makes return appearances in, uh, courage, the cowardly dog properly. There's, um, oh goodness. I don't remember the name of the episode, unfortunately, but the episode starts off with an alien spaceship flying down, looking very familiar. If you've seen that pilot, mm-hmm. but ends up abducting both Muriel and Eustace courage gets on board and on board. It's just like, a. Uh, you, you've seen like rotisserie chickens, right? You know, just fully cooked chicken that you usually can find at Walmart or people do like dancing chickens in their ovens. You oh, guys yeah. know what I'm talking about, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's the chicken now. It's just a rotisserie style looking chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it kidnapped Eustace and Muriel was that it wants to take one of their heads and put it on its body. So it has a head. <laughs> it's somehow able to move around totally fine. It just needs a head so it can talk and do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember if it shows up in another episode after that one, but um, I remember watching that and just being like, why is there a chicken? And then when it showed the, kind of like the flashback of like its little thought bubble showing what happened, it's like, oh, yeah, that's from the, the pilot. Because <laughs> I remember when I, I think, like, like I said, this show premiered in 1999, the proper series. If I remember correctly, like the first night it was on, because I remember seeing the pilot on TV. They must have played the pilot right before the first episode aired. It's kind of like a, you know, here's like the early version, but now here's the real show, blah, blah, blah. But it's it's really funny. If you go up, if you look up the show, Penny, and you want to check out episodes of it, um, try and find that episode. Because if you remember the pilot so well, you'll get a kick out of uh, nice. that particular episode of the main series. I will. But um, since we've now gotten a little more courage, thanks to talking about courage, 
Um, I think now we should move on to the next thing that you want to talk about, Pendy. So why don't you go ahead and take it away? Sure. So my next movie was actually originally pitched to the movie studio as The Shining, but in space. <laughs> that was it. Was not my uh, not my intention to go so into uh, Shining related material for this episode. I, I just wanted it's like, hey, I'm going to do The Shining. Hey, I'm going to do this other movie. It just happened to be related. But uh, for this movie. Are you craving a movie with bad, no-gravity CGI effects, hokey set designs, and cheap sound effects? Well, look no further than 1997's sci-fi horror film, Event Horizon. (laughs) This is a movie I saw in college too many times. Uh, At the time, I was in a dorm, and the dorm actually had free HBO. And this movie, at the time, would come on all the time, the first semester I was there. And for some reason... Me and my roommate were obsessed with it, and we would just watch it constantly as it would come on on HBO. Uh, It will be forever ingrained in my mind because of that. So what is this movie about? Well, this movie is about a rescue ship that is sent out to check out the missing spaceship called Event Horizon. That's the name of the movie. It's a, uh, the Event Horizon is a ship with a new experimental engine, engine that went missing for seven years. It's directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, Famous for films such as Mortal Kombat, Resident Evil, and I know from recent talk, Yangus's favorite movie, Monster Hunter. <laughs> Quote unquote famous. <laughs> oh, yeah. you forgot the in at the. Sorry. Oh God, I didn't realize I, I, that guy did this freaking movie. Oh yeah. my God. Oh yeah, yeah, it's this guy. Was his wife Why did you have to mention the Monster Hunter movie? No, 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 Mila Jovovich in this movie. Unlike some of the others, that. Oh my God. It puts in a lot. But, uh, I think they're married know, in real life, and I think that's why she always ends up in those movies. Yep. But uh, as you as you may have guessed, this is not necessarily a great movie. <laughs> it can get very unintentionally uh, campy and cheesy. But to me, it's fun because of these elements, the way that it works out. It also has some great performances by Lawrence Fishburne of Matrix fame and Sam Neill of Jurassic Park fame. Uh, It does have some similarities to The Shining, as advertised. Uh, Instead of a hotel driving people mad and showing creepy haunted images, it's a spaceship doing the same thing. Uh, They even have a scene where a huge area of water, a big tank, turns to blood and kind of breaks open. And it's similar to the elevator scene where the the blood comes pouring out. So it's like a nod to The Shining when they did that. Uh, Sam Neill's character is part of the rescue crew in the movie. He's there because he designed the Event Horizon ship and the experimental engine within. Uh, the engine basically creates a mini black hole to jump from different areas to jump to different areas of space. But in doing so, it connects. It ends up connecting to this evil dimension of chaos, as the movie puts it. Uh, the ship slowly influences Sam Neill's character to go mad and murder his crewmates and try to activate the engine to go back into the dark depths of evil. Uh, I would say that my favorite line in this movie is from Lawrence Fishburne. He says at one point, I will take the Lewis and Clark to a safe distance, and then I'll fire at, I will fire attack missiles at the event horizon until I'm satisfied she's vaporized. Fuck this ship. And, and he, when he says attack missiles, that's short for tactical. But on a side note, you know what? It's just something that really always creeps me out in movies is people that end up like slitting their wrists when they're trying to commit suicide. Like, this happens to a character in the movie. It's part of the background of uh, Sam Neill's character, what happens to his wife, because he's too obsessed with uh, developing the ship and the engine. And I just have this thing where it always really creeps me out when I see that in a movie. It just, ugh, it just I, I shudder just from, from thinking about it. Uh, 
but in the end, if you want to enjoy a cheesy sci-fi horror movie, this will be right up your alley. Uh, you can even play a fun drinking game where you can take a shot every time you see a bad CGI gravity effect. Because <laughs> uh, they're, they're, not, they're not good. Uh, I, was reading, I was reading the uh, background on this movie that instead of trying to go with a, a, a more competent effect studio like ILM, they, they went with some cheaper studios out of Europe. And you can tell, that, uh, that you can tell the difference of, of how the, the quality effects but has, has anyone else seen this uh this this movie before or, or is, it, is it just me my college so <laughs> i haven't seen this movie personally but i have seen it talked about and i've heard that this movie originally had a much um bloodier edit to it before they had to censor it down so it could uh, be shown in theaters i don't oh, know yeah, how that... true that story is but that's what i've heard no that's very true there's like two there's two distinct scenes where they show like scenes of uh terror uh kind of one towards the beginning and one towards the very end uh the one towards the the beginning is what hap- they show like what happened to the the uh the previous crew of the event horizon and like what happened at the very end when everyone went crazy and started uh, this big sex orgy and killing each other. And this guy is like holding his eyeballs in his hands and saying stuff in Latin. And then the, towards the end, uh, Sam Neill's character takes Lawrence Fishburne by the head and kind of gives him a vision of what's going to happen to the crew. If he's successful and all the torture that he's going to put them through uh, if he su- succeeds, which of course he doesn't. Uh, but it's it was they had to cut it down like a lot because it was it was pretty bad. Like for the beginning scene where they show like what happened to the old crew, like the director actually hired like um, a lot of amputees and porn porn actors actresses and actors to to, to get like uh, like an orgy of just blood and sex and all this other stuff. So yeah, they had to tone it down like a lot to uh, for the uh, the first cut, the final cut of the movie. That's so crazy. It, it, it's it's uh it gets it's even even with them cutting a lot of, out of it it can get uh, gory here and there with some of the stuff that crazy stuff that happens in the movie. Jeez, I can't believe that actually was true. That's one of those yeah. things I heard about and I'm like, okay, there's got to be some like exaggerated details to that, right? But um yeah, clearly not apparently. <laughs> no, they went nuts. <laughs> Jeez. That's what about crazy. What about you, EAL? Have you ever seen this movie before? Never watched it, unfortunately. But I do love <laughs> I do love schlocky garbage. Oh no, if this we, is great schlocky garbage. So you, uh, you'd enjoy it. If we if we if we end up talking about three uh, movies today, uh, I have my own schlocky garbage to talk about. So, <laughs> oh, well, see that works out. Let's let's do that next. Let's go with the schlocky right. garbage that that you have uh, lined up for us. All right. So uh, this movie is called The Faculty. It's kind of one of the forgotten Robert Rodriguez movies that he did. And I, one, of the, one of the great things about Robert Rodriguez is that he can make like a pretty good movie and you think, oh, that was a good movie. Then he can make a terrible movie. And there's just some sort of weird charm about it that even though it's like really bad and kind of the special effects don't look great, you, you just kind of love it for some reason. And so the faculty is about basically it's like an alien invasion. They actually reference invasion of the body snatchers. For the plot a lot in the movies so the thing about it like that these 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 a, this, an alien comes to earth and takes over this the staff the faculty quote-unquote of the of a high school and they slowly infect all the students with this parasite that also kind of turns them into like an alien hive basically and their plan is to spread out all across the globe and completely take over the planet but first they're starting in the 
scariest, most horrifying, haunted place we'll probably ever talk about today. Ohio. No! <laughs> That's hilarious. No, not Ohio. <laughs> you know, I always joke about that in the Discord because we have several people from Ohio in the Discord, so that's, that's great. The, the, the crazy thing about the, this movie is how ridiculously stacked the cast of this movie is. It stars Elijah Wood, Clea Duvall, Josh Hartnett. If you are if you watched movies in the early 2000s, you probably knew who he was. Jordana Brewster's in there. Robert Patrick. I think I think he played the coach, the, uh, the football coach. Uh, Robert Patrick was the T-1000 Terminator 2. Um, John Stewart is like the biology teacher. And he, he becomes infected at one point, and they have to fight him. And they do some wild special effects with him. It's very strange. They had Salma Hayek. And, you know, you see Salma Hayek, and like, oh, she's going to be, like, the sexy lady. But she's, like, the school nurse who complains about being, I think, tired all the time. And oh, who's the other one? They also had the woman who played Jean, Jean Grey in the X-Men movies. Uh, what's her name? She was a Bond lady, but she's in this movie too. And you think, oh, Bond girl, she must play another sexy character. But no, she plays like the the meek, mousy teacher who can't stand up for herself. And this whole movie is just full of characters that portray like a, a typical trope. Like Elijah Wood's kind of like the everyman nobody guy who gets bullied all the time. Uh, Josh Hartnett's kind of like the burnout who's not, you know... He sells drugs. He's not living to his fullest potential. Uh, there's the goth girl. There's the the quarterback guy. They're, 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 all these tropes, all these trope characters, and they have to team up to defeat these aliens because no one believes them, and they're the only ones left who can stop them. And how are they going to stop them? Well, Josh Hartnett, uh, he is a drug dealer, and he developed a drug called Scat. And it's like this weird drug that he keeps in a pen cap. And I think they have it like that because it looks cool when you stab someone in the eye with a pen cap and whatever is in it like burns them or melts them and it's got all these it's got all this like ridiculous stuff there's a scene at one point where they're in a room together and they're trying to and they're trying to make each other take this drug they have to snort this, this. wait i want to i want to just jump in here just real quick did you say sure. the drug that they made was called scat yes i was waiting for someone to react to it, it they really they do know that that has several other yes. meanings right <laughs> And I was like, am I misremembering this? Before I say this, let me uh, look up real quick. Oh, yes, it is oh a scat. But what happened, it's like... A All right, I'm sorry. This... Go, go on and continue. I'm sorry. I just, I, I no had worries. to say that. I was <laughs> hoping someone would react to that. Um, it's a, it's like this drug that you have to, like, snort up your nose. And there's a scene where everyone has to take, has to snort this drug to prove they're not an alien. So it's the scene of, like, Elijah Wood tweaking out or all these other characters going, no, no, I'm not going to do that take it or we're gonna have to shoot you and all the, all this really weird edgy early or late 90s stuff it, it, it has like that 90s charm and i think it's because the script was written by the same guy who wrote scream one and two so it has like even though it, it it's not similar to scream in terms of plot you still sort of, or it's not as self-referential as scream is it uh it has that sort of charm in the way the characters talk to each other so even though they're all like very stereotypical, you know, 
teen trope characters. There, there's something about the way they, they talk to each other, bounce off each other. There's there's lots of scenes where they're interacting with different people, so it's not all their one big homogenous group talking to each other. There's oh he's talk you know this is how he talks to this character. This is how she talks to him. They talk to him. Um, and of course. Uh, it also has to have a really badass, cool thing that someone says, and I'll never forget this in my entire life. There is a there's a scene where Elijah Wood has to stab one of the aliens with the pen hat with filled with scat, and he says, "Oh my god, it was guaranteed to jack you up," and then he stabs him. I was like, "What is?" <laughs> happening right now it was so i want to see this movie now you're you're totally selling this movie to me man there's a part where a character's head falls off but they're not dead and their octopus tentacle growing out of their head (laughs) crawling over their body and it has just some of the worst special effects you've seen it's actually not bad for the time but it you look at it and you go oh that's kind of rough luckily they did use practical effects decently enough so when there is a scene where i don't know there's a giant cgi alien it doesn't look super bad um but i I, it's like one of those weird relics from the late 90s that everyone forgets it's kind of like it's kind of like i know what you did last summer although i think this is like a lot more fun movie it was actually like one of the first horror movies i ever watched i remember i was trying to when i was like a teen on summer vacation i was trying to get into watching scary movies and it was like a movie that was on at like one in the morning on like some random like tnt or usa channel or fox or something and i watched it and i was like well it's got a lot of actors i know in it so it can't be scary and it was it was just so fun to watch i (laughs) i i rewatched it like a couple weeks ago and i was like i'm having so much fun watching this movie right now i was like cheering i was going what is happening what is going on it's like oh my god why am i watching all these characters get get whatever um getting high in a basement right now it was so strange and it was such a long scene too that was what got me it was a very long scene and it made sense but everyone was saying no i'm not gonna do it and i was like well why not Everyone's like, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I was like, well, what's the point of the scene if you're all going to object to it? <laughs> and it's because one of them is an alien. And it, it was it was so wild. I it was I was I remember watching it when I was like younger going, oh, this is a pretty good movie. Uh, but I, I think over time I was thinking, oh, that was probably because it was my first one of my first horror movies. I wasn't totally up on the genre i wasn't really a, a smart movie watcher then I, I i didn't have this evolved palette that i do have now quote unquote and i was like let's see if this movie holds up and it holds up in this weird way where it doesn't hold up but that makes it hold up even more and i was like i i love this movie and for some reason elijah wood is the main character but i think he's one of the last characters to get credited uh during the closing credit scene I was like, well, wait a minute. This is—he's like literally the main character. He's the POV character. You're supposed to identify with him. He has a lot of big moments. Uh, you see him a lot. He's like one of the first characters to notice is a problem. Why is he literally like behind all of the teachers? Like, like, <laughs> all of the teachers. I remember there was 
if any of you watched Malcolm in the Middle, the um, the drill sergeant in the first couple seasons, he was a teacher in there too. Nice. Oh, it was such a great movie. It's, it is so schlocky, but it's like just, there's just like a little bit of heart and charm and goofiness to it that really carries it the whole way. This really sounds like the perfect movie to watch with buddies one night and just be like, oh yeah, you know, you just enjoy laughing at how it's just stupid it gets. You're like, this is this is this is Robert Rodriguez in the late '90s, right before Spy Kids. So think about oh, that. This is just pre-Spy Kids. I think that was actually his next movie. Oh man, yeah. You know, I will say just um, you talking about like the one thing with Robert Rodriguez movies that I've seen is that even if the movies themselves get like real wacky and all that, that he he does do a pretty good job directing people and like casting people. Like I I can't you know speak for this movie of course, but like someone like, hasn't watched Shark Boy and Lava Girl. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? The kid that plays Linus is like perfect in that movie. He's just so over the top and silly. <laughs> I still but, have that dream song in my head. Oh my god, that stupid song! Oh man, let's not let's not bring up that horror. That's a whole another ballpark. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> but um, like I, I will say, like from from the few Robert Rodriguez movies that I've seen, that you know there is always something like enjoyable about them. Whether it's something that's like supposed to be you know fun or something that's just so weird and like what the hell is this? That that's what makes it entertaining. But I mean, really, you're talking about this movie. It sounds like one where it's like, oh man, this sounds like just absolutely nuts. I want to check this out for myself. <laughs> And just yeah, see, he, you know, how crazy it gets. He goes from Desperado, from Dust Till Dawn, The Faculty, and then Spy Kids. <laughs> so you're you're getting post from Dust Till Dawn, pre Spy Kids, like a little bit of the two moods mixed together into some teen sci-fi horror movie. <laughs> you get you get uh, the melting pot experience, basically. Yeah, <laughs> written by the guy who did Scream. Oh boy, oh man, that it definitely sounds like a fun movie to check out just just to see how silly it gets too. Because, like I said, your just descriptions of it just made me keep thinking, like, oh my gosh, this movie sounds nuts. I want to watch it like I, I right now. <laughs> I mentioned to a friend that I had watched this watched it recently. He goes, "Oh man, I remember that movie. Remember uh, Josh Hartnett's hair?" I was like, "How could I forget from now on?" It, just Google Josh Hartnett the faculty hair, and you'll see what his hair was looking like. And you're like, "Who thought this was like the cool burnout character look?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll have to take a, I'll have to take a look at that. <laughs> um, but uh, since you brought up Elijah Wood, actually, that's a perfect transition into the other thing that I was going to talk about tonight, uh, which actually stars Elijah Wood as one of the main characters. Um, so for my other uh, t- uh, topic I want to talk about tonight, I decided to pick Over the Garden Wall, uh, which was created by Patrick McHale and uh, premiered in November 2014 on Cartoon Network. Uh, so this show is actually a bit different from what normally appeared on the network at the time, and even uh, now it's still kind of a unique premise. It was actually a miniseries, uh, which was a first for Cartoon Network uh, in 2014. Uh, eventually, we saw some other ones come along, like uh, Infinity Train, which had different uh, miniseries with different um, stories focusing on other characters. But um, Over the Garden Wall was the first attempt at that. Uh, so the story of the show focuses on two brothers, uh, Wart and Greg, who have ended up in this place called The Unknown. Neither of them really remembers why they're even in this place. Uh, so they end up just uh, setting out to discover a way back home. Uh, they run into 
a number of characters who help them on their journey, such as Beatrice the Bluebird, uh, the Mysterious Woodsman, the Frog with no name that Greg brings along as his pet and is constantly calling him something different in every single episode. And there are a variety of other strange folks who happen to live within the Forest of the Unknown. The boys also have to watch out for a creature known as the Beast, a figure who wanders the woods and searches for lost souls to add to his collection, quote-unquote. Uh, the show features a very strong voice cast for the main and the side characters, uh, including Elijah Wood as Wirt, uh, one of the main boys. You have Christopher Lloyd as the voice of the woodsman, who the boys constantly run into in different episodes. You have John Cleese appear as Mr. Endicott, uh, a wealthy, eccentric man who lives in the heart of the forest in this big, sprawling mansion. Uh, he also voices Adelaide, the good witch of the woods, who uh, the boys are trying to find because, uh, as they're told by Beatrice, she can help them find a way home. And you have another notable one, such as t another notable voice actor, uh, Tim Curry, who voices Auntie Whispers, uh, just to name a few of the examples that appear in the show. Uh, there are some others that include uh, Colin Dean, uh, Melanie... Uh, Linsky, which apologies if I've said any of these names wrong so far, uh, Jack Jones, Samuel Ramey, and Emily uh, Brundage, or Brundage, I'm not really sure how to say that one. Uh, but one of the standout voices uh, to me in this show is Samuel Ramey as the voice of the Beast, as he always provides this very cold and distant, but almost trustworthy delivery with every line he says. Um, the Beast is very much a character who tries to persuade um travelers and wanderers uh, to come with him or to help him with his own uh, to help him with his own ends but the way that uh, Sam Moraimi uh, delivers his lines he does you know such a good job with that and he does a great job with the singing uh, of the beast for the few songs that the beast has and providing uh, being able to provide a comforting melody with pretty haunting lyrics if you pay closely enough attention to them. Um, so like Courage the Cowardly Dog, this is a show that I felt had a really good blend of horror and humor across the 10 episodes it had. Some episodes uh, do have a lot more humorous vibe to them. Uh, some of them have more of that creepy tone as well. Uh, but even some of the episodes with the more humorous vibe uh, can end up being a bit unsettling with how it presents itself and you know how it creates that atmosphere of this place that the boys travel to. Uh, so one of my one of the best examples, I think, is from episode four, where the boys end up at this inn in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the boys end up there after uh, hitching a ride from a man who is driving his carriage through the forest. They end up um, trying to rest there for a little while. And as they discover, like everyone who's in this inn all falls into a particular profession and are pretty much just that's their defining character. Uh, some of these people have a very... I guess the best way to put it is interesting way of delivering advice to the boys or explaining who they are. Uh, one of my favorite examples, just for you know how bizarre it is, but also kind of how creepy it is, is the Highwayman and uh, his distorted singing and his animation. <clears throat> if you happen to look up the show, whether it's you guys who are on tonight or anybody who's listening, I'd recommend going to YouTube and just looking up um, Over the Garden Wall, The Highwayman. It's just like a 30-second clip from the show. But the way it's animated and the way that that particular part is sung, like even now, like I can just picture that clear as day. And it's just so bizarre because the way it's um, animated is just so well done just to give you that sort of uncomfortable, you know, what the heck is this vibe? And I, that's what I really think is so great about the show. Um, because th like there's a lot of uh, well put together animation, really good color choices, a great way to show like this is a show that I think purpose 
perfectly uh, encapsulates uh, the fall season slash the Halloween season. Uh, this was a show, you know, it's from 2014. Uh, this is one that I saw when actually when I was in college. Uh, I remember I was watching, I believe it was Adult Swim one night, and there were advertisements for uh, Over the Garden Wall at the time. Because what, one of the nice things that about Adult Swim even now is that they do a good job, you know, sort of promoting some of the things that would be on Cartoon Network that could, you know, appeal to people who, you know, either grew up with a network like uh, I have or maybe older audiences who enjoy animation who'd want to check it out. And um, that's why I ended up watching it. I remember seeing it and just being like, well, I couldn't really tell what the vibe of it was, but I could tell it was kind of going for that fall-esque sort of vibe. And there's like a mystery to it. So I I didn't really know what to expect from the show going in. And I certainly wasn't expecting it to get as dark as it did with both the visuals and storytelling. This is one that I guess for comparison's sake, like with how its designs can be, it's kind of Tim Burton-esque if you've seen The Nightmare Before Christmas, where some of the characters might have these like strange and sort of outlandish designs to them. But then you can find out that there are some really, you know, like they are genuinely nice people. Like Tim Curry's character, for example, Auntie Whispers, at first, you know, it comes across as like, oh, you know, she's, you know, a scary old witch you got to watch out for. But then it turns out that she was actually just trying to protect uh, the girl, Lorna, who has been living with her from the creature slash demon that has possessed uh, the girl. Um, I won't get too much into spoilers, but that's one that's a standout example. It's like, you know, you can't really judge a book by its cover, which is something that you do see a lot with this show as well. Uh, Other than that, uh, there are some very tense moments and a lot of great foreshadowing uh, to future events as well. Like episode four, like I mentioned, there's a song that it's sung by the innkeeper uh, letting you know about like why you need to be careful of the beast and watch out for the beast and that actually those lyrics end up do coming into play later on in the show so when you go back and if whether you go back and watch or you're paying attention like "Uh aha so that's why you know they mentioned that kind of um it's sort of like um i don't know what i want to use but if you're paying attention you know you then can catch those sort of references or those uh foreshadowing moments you're like oh okay i see you know it's kind of i think that's pretty clever when they kind of uh sneakily put that sort of stuff in there uh but anyway one of the examples uh, that stands out to me for this sort of foreshadowing or like this uh, strange twist of events is actually in episode eight where uh greg is whisked off to this dreamland after the two boys have uh, been separated from beatrice and they're trying to catch some sleep because you know they've been traveling through the woods for such a long time well, as Greg is in this um, dreamlike uh, world, he ends up uh, helping out the people up there and makes a wish to try and save, um, uh, to say, uh, you know, he ends up getting a wish so he could try and leave the forest, but he can only use it on either himself or his brother <coughs> so they can safely go home. While Greg being such the kind little character that he is, uh, he ends up using it to save his brother, Wirt, instead of himself. But then you get the... Um, you then realize, like, once he wakes up, and just who exactly it was that uh, granted his wish. Well, it, as I was saying, if you had been paying attention to the show, and uh, particularly if you were noticing uh, some of what I said about the big bad that I've mentioned a little bit ago, uh, you'll have an idea on who exactly it was that Greg was uh, making this deal slash wish, wish with. Um, one of the things I did really like about the show, too, is that there's some really good character development between uh, the main cast. So the main characters are Wirt and Greg. Uh, there is the frog that's with them, but he doesn't really say a whole lot. He does have a pretty funny scene in episode, uh, it's either seven or six. I think it's episode six, if I remember correctly, where he is somehow able to perfectly sing a song. <laughs> but... Um, he doesn't really say anything otherwise, so it really just catches them off guard. But it really it fits in with the sort of uh, fantasy-like vibe of this whole place. 
but um, the two brothers have a good dynamic with each other because Wirt is, um, you know, the, I think the show has a really good start to it as well because the narrator gives you this explanation of like, uh, you know, uh, these two brothers have found themselves in the strange place that is called the unknown. And as soon as he gets done talking, you know, it's just, just showing Greg and Wirt walking through the forest. And all of a sudden, Wirt stops and is like, wait, Greg, what, where are we? And Greg just being the... He's much younger than his older brother, Wirt. He's just very much like, oh, I don't know. You know, he's just a cheerful little kid. He just doesn't really pay, care too much about that sort of detail. He's like, well, I don't know. We've just been walking through the forest. And, of course, Wirt's then con um, concerned about, you know, how did we get here? Like, why are we stuck here in the forest? You know, what ended up causing this? And as the show goes on, you do get to hear some more details about what their life was like, you know, before they ended up in the, in the unknown. Uh, you do end up getting to see an episode later on in the series how they ended up in the unknown and there's a lot there's actually in that particular episode um i don't want to give too many spoilers away but if you really pay attention to some of the details and some of the areas that they go to before that episode wraps up and what ends up leading to them getting into the unknown it's actually kind of th 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 that's where the show's darker tone sort of takes its place or really like shines because it's something that you know it it's not necessarily shoved in your face, but if you're paying attention and like, and for my example, since I watched it in college, you know, I had an older mindset. I was like, oh, you know, kind of immediately sort of recognize like, oh, this is that kind of story, huh? And um, that was one of the things that I really did enjoy about this show, too, was that how it handled its storytelling, how it handled its characters, how it handled um, its atmosphere and this world building of the unknown. I think that there is like a lot of great things to this particular show. Um, I really enjoy, you know, it's, like I think this is a great way to encapsulate the Halloween slash fall season. It is one that I've rewatched every year. Um, I actually ended up getting it on Blu-ray. Uh, it's not in an English release Blu-ray. Well, it technically is an English release Blu-ray, but it's from uh, either Europe or uh, another country release. Anyway, uh, it's a Blu-ray copy of the show that I ended up getting and importing, and I'm really glad I did because it has a lot of cool extras and details. Like it even includes the original pilot, which was called Into the Unknown, and um, where the boys were actually searching for a book called The Tome of the Unknown. And um, let me see. Uh, this is a show that I think has some really great humor. Uh, again, it has a really wonderful atmosphere and a really great soundtrack that was created by The Blasting Company. Uh, if you actually get this movie on, or excuse me, if you get this miniseries on Blu-ray, there actually is an option just to watch the entire show with just the music. You don't have to, you don't, there's like, there's none of the dialogue. It's all of the visual, it's um, just all the visuals uh, with just the background music and um, the original song slash um, covers of songs that they wrote. Because the, this, um, this series ends up using a lot of uh, older folk songs and um, other pieces in order to add some background to different scenes and to, you know, really help kind of reflect what's going on in the story itself. I don't unfortunately know which, if every single song that... Um, uh, was covered is like a brand new one originally for the series if they're all, all just covers of old folk, folk songs so i'm not 100 on that but really either way like a lot i found a lot of the music fit and i this is actually one of the soundtracks that when i saw it was available on itunes like i got it right away because this that's one of the things that really stood out to me about the show and again it's like with courage the cowardly dog like the sound design was something that i thought worked really well and um not to I don't want to ramble too much about this show, but this is one that I definitely highly recommend if you enjoy, you know, checking out, um, for one, if you like in checking out uh, animation, you know, ser like animated series, or 
if you're looking for a new uh, Halloween slash um, fall time sort of show to watch, you know, it's a mini series, eight episodes about uh, roughly 11, 12 minutes or so. So it's not going to take you too awful long to get through the series either. It's only 10 episodes long, but there's a lot of great, um, great features to the show. And this is one too, where watching like some of the background info and reading up on it, that a lot of the people who worked on it too, were pretty enthusiastic about it. Like, the reason why they even got Elijah Wood to voice uh, Wart, the main character, was that they ended up showing him, uh, you know, some of like the pre-sketches and the designs for the backgrounds and everything. And like he was so taken in by it that that's one of the reasons why he wanted to be on the show was that he just really enjoyed um, the style that the show was going for. So he wanted to be a part of it. And I think that says something when an actor, you know, has to just, you know, they just look at that sort of thing. You know, Elijah Wood's been in a ton of movies and some pretty big stuff too, like Lord of the Rings and things like that. So I think that says a lot for the quality of the show as well. And like, he was like, okay, you know, this looks like something that could be a lot of fun and, you know, something that could be interesting to be in. And I, you know, I, I do have a lot of love for this series. Like I have a lot of love for Courage the Cowardly Dog for like the pretty much the same reasons, but I definitely highly recommend uh, Over the Garden Wall if you're looking for something new or if you missed out on it when it was originally on TV. It's it's well worth checking out. And there's a lot of great details and a lot of great other things to the show that I didn't even get a chance to mention or haven't mentioned. But um, Pendy and Evan, have either of you two seen and or heard of Over the Garden Wall? I hadn't even heard of this before, so it seems interesting. I have heard of it. I was aware of Elijah Wood's involvement. But I have never watched it. But I will say, um, I really love Elijah Wood as like an actor because he had the the balls to go from big, huge movies like Lord of the Rings, and he's like, "What am I gonna do? I'm gonna be in Over the Garden Wall, um, Broken Age, uh, a bunch of uh, lower budget indie movies." I remember watching a show on FX called Wilfred, where he is a depressed man who visualizes his neighbor's dog as a large Australian man in a dog suit. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing commercials for that, yeah. He, mm-hmm. he, he just does all these, like, not necessarily weird, but, like, unusual roles. And it doesn't seem like this is something he's, like, been forced into because he's having he's struggling. It just seems like he's genuinely interested in this Mm-hmm. weird little project and just wants to be in it mm-hmm. so and that, I, that's I, what i think is what why i like him as an actor uh, so much too evan is because he it does seem very genuine with some of the things he wants to be a part of you know he just you know, he just wants to be a part of it there's no like underlying meaning he just thinks it's gonna be a fun thing that that's always the impression i've got from him too but it, it was it was weird with elijah wood just a uh, side note with me is I don't know what it was, but when he was a kid actor before he uh, grew up a little bit and did, went on to do the Lord of the Rings, like I hated him. Like I don't know what it was about him. I was like, whenever I saw him as a kid actor, I was like, oh, I hate this kid. I don't want to see anything that he's involved with. And it wasn't until Lord of the Rings where I was like, oh, okay, this guy's pretty cool. It, but I, it was weird. It's just a weird hang up I had when I was growing up. <laughs> That's why you didn't yeah. watch The Faculty. <laughs> 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 I I will say it is weird if you guys ever see Back to the Future Part Two. He's in um the two, the 2015 scene where um Marty's in the diet or in the restaurant and uh, he's playing um oh gosh what's that Nintendo game? It's that shooter one that he used the the light gun for. Uh, uh, duck hunt? No, it wasn't duck hunt. It's related to that one though. I can't think of what it's. Anyway, the point is like he's playing that game and the kids are watching him because they're trying to get the the arcade machine to work. Well, as soon as they see it. Um, the one who ends up saying this uh, is Elijah Wood of the little kids. He's like, 
ew, that's a game you gotta abuse with you gotta abuse your hands to play? That's just a baby's toy. <laughs> and that that's that's his only scene in the movie. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe that was what caused you to hate him so much, just like making fun of Papa Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> Making fun of my my NES Zapper games? How dare he? <laughs> is it the, like I'm going to go the, back to Connect, which was successful and everyone loves? <laughs> it was the style at the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Uh, What's the name of that game? Was he playing? I'm trying to Operation Wolf. Was it that game that he was playing? No, it's the. It was the shooter game. Like if you ever played Smash Brothers, maybe Evan knows this one too. Um, it's where you're. It, um, Duck Hunt can use the move where he summons one of the five, like, shooters from this old arcade game Nintendo had, where it was, like, um, five different, like, pixelated cowboy slash gunner-looking guys who you had to, like, shoot when they would pop up on the screen. And when they shot, when they popped up, they'd always have this, like, pixelated, like, sort of sound to them before they shot you. I want to say it was, like, Crazy Arms. It wasn't Wild Arms, but... It, uh, anyway, that's the game that he's playing in that scene. I'll have to look it up and maybe we can find a picture of it for the episode. I don't know. But okay. um, but anyway, like I remember that particular scene of Elijah Wood too. And, he, and just you talking about how you didn't like him as a kid actor, it's like, I bet maybe it was that scene. He just saw me. He's like, oh, I hate that kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I cheated. I Googled it. It's Call Wild Gunner. Wild Gunner. Oh. Thank you. Oh, game's called Wild Gunner. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. I, I thought it had Wild in the title. <laughs> <laughs> I totally knew that because I am such a gamer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just remember when I was um, when I remember when Duck Hunt. Just a quickly sidetrack here: when Duck Hunt was added to Smash Brothers, that they showed that one of his moves was that he summoned like those different shooters. And I'm like, wait a second, those guys were in uh, Back to the Future. I didn't know that was a Nintendo game. What? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about Over the Garden Wall. I definitely recommend it if you're looking for something new uh, to check out. It's really, like I, like I said, it's really well put together. And it's it's a lot of fun to watch. And it's it's fun to rewatch, too, because you start noticing a lot more of the details as well. But um, I think that's going to wrap it up for my stuff. Uh, did you guys have a third thing you wanted to talk about before we uh, call it a night, then? Oh, yeah, I got I got uh, a last a last uh, entry for myself. I figured we'll go from one animated special, uh, well, actually... From one your animated show to an animated special. Okay, uh, there we go. My well, take it away, so I'll, I'll go with uh, my last pick. Is not scary at all, but very much in the Halloween theme of this show. It's the Great Shining, Charlie Brown. I mean, it's the Great Pumpkin. <laughs> this has no relation to the Shining, I promise. Uh, red rum, Charlie Brown. Red rum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is a, a classic 1966 TV special based off of. Charles Schultz's Peanuts comics. In this special, the kids go out to have fun trick-or-treating and enjoy a party afterwards, while Linus convinces Sally to go out to the most sincere pumpkin patch ever to discover the Great Pumpkin. All the while, Snoopy's overactive imagination has him shot down by the Red Baron behind enemy lines while he's trying to fly his soft-whip camel. Uh, his journey overlaps with the various children in fun and hilarious ways. This special is a part of what I call the Holy Trinity of Peanuts holiday TV specials that also includes a Charlie Brown Christmas and a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. If you know me, you know that uh, I love Peanuts. Uh, I even went out and I've slowly collected the entire comic book strip in hardcover form uh, from when the strip started in 1950 all the way to when it ended in 2000. Uh, it's been a favorite of mine ever since I was a little kid. But what's great about it, though, is that, that Peanuts, is not ne Peanuts is not necessarily just for little kids. The comic in this special is, you know, this has many jokes that are probably jokes that only adults would get. Uh, like, for example, in the special Linus and Charlie Brown are arguing about Santa Claus and the Great Pumpkin. 
And then Charlie Brown says, well, you know, we're obviously separated by denominational differences, kind of a, a joke about religions and things, things like that. And then there's other jokes about like having a document notarized where like it, they have one of the classic scenes where Charlie Brown's trying to kick the football from Lucy. Uh, but he's like, you know, I'm in Lucy tries, you know, she always pulls it away and he, he falls and he never kicks it. But Lucy convinces him this time by saying like, oh, yeah, I got this document, you know, saying that uh, I will, you know, I won't take the ball away from you. He's like, oh, it's a, an official document. This is going to this will be fine. I, I can actually kick the ball this time. And then after he, you know, obviously he fails and he falls on his face. Lucy's like, oh, well, you, you know, the thing about this document, it's not notarized. So it's not official. So sorry. Uh, and also you've got it. You've got a joke where like Sally's yelling at Linus that he owes her restitution. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of my favorite bits, too. And the animation for that scene is great, too, because like he just she shakes him so fast. Just like, oh, you yeah. owe me restitution. <laughs> You know, it's it's oftentimes it's these little kid characters talking about adult situations in the comics, in, in this comic strip, and in, in it's in or the show or the movies, and it's an idea that I'm sure that shows like South Park were inspired by later on. Uh, another joke that I love in this special is that one where they actually break the fourth wall, and I I had totally forgotten about this until I rewatched it. But in one scene, Lucy is reading a TV guide magazine. And, but Lucy's on the cover of the TV guy. <laughs> oh, fine. So I, so I thought that was hilarious. Uh, the special also has the famous or infamous candy scene. It's like the kids say, the, you know, when the kid says, like, I got five pieces of candy. Oh, I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. And then Charlie Brown says, I got a rock. He keeps getting rocks from all the different houses. Uh, <laughs> As in many of the early specials, the music is composed by the great jazz musician Vince Guaraldi. Uh, this special in particular probably has one of the best renditions of the track Linus and Lucy in it. The one where it's like do 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 bum 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 bum. But uh, in this one, they added like a, a nice little flute flourish to it, so it was a, a nice little change to it as opposed to what they did in the Christmas special. But if you're looking for a great Halloween special that adults and kids can enjoy, Look no further. Um, has anyone else have any uh, great memories or good memories about this uh, special as well? I have seen this one almost like every Halloween, whether because it's on TV or just happen to have any like little cousins that are seeing it for the first time themselves. And it's always interesting watching the reactions, especially from like younger kids when they watch this one, because they definitely enjoy like the silliness of like a snoopy you know you know getting into his sort of misadventures but then when it comes to some of the kids stuff they don't really know quite how to react to it mainly because of like you know them using like the big words like you know restitution and um (laughs) things like that you know that part kind of goes over their heads but at least from my experiences of seeing it but you know i do have a lot of love for the peanuts as well um charlie brown in particular has always been one of my favorite characters because you know he like he always gets like the worst things to happen to him but he never seems to give up and i kind of appreciate that within a character like you know even though these bad things can happen he does not not necessarily has like a like a very positive attitude all the time but it never really like fully puts him down you know what i mean yeah he always perseveres yeah doesn't get him down he may have like a, a period of, of uh, hopelessness, but he always finds a way to get through it. Mm-hmm. He gets knocked down, but he gets up again because you're never going to keep him down. <laughs> you're never going to keep me down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. I think the issue now is I don't have cable, so I, I actually haven't watched it in a couple of years. But I actually had the opposite reaction where I loved all the... Which is funny because I, lo- I loved Snoopy, but for some reason, I actually really disliked the Red Baron stuff. <laughs> I felt... 
I felt like it was a very long diversion from the main plot. And I was like, okay, yeah, we get it. Let's move back to, you know, the pumpkin patch stuff because I liked that stuff more. And I think what I feel like the the charm, like you mentioned, of, you know, Peanuts is they're children that act like adults. Yeah. So, so when a kid's watching it, they're watching a child perform as an adult, like acting mm-hmm. and saying adult things, even though they're not really adults. But you're you as a kid go, oh, that's a thing my mom or dad would say, mm-hmm. but they say it in a kiddie way. It's kind of like how when you watch Rugrats and they interpret some situation with the adults as something else completely different. It's kind of like the more grown-up version of that. Pretty much. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. That's a pretty good comparison because. I remember episodes of Rugrats where that sort of thing would happen, where the adults would, you know, bring up this or that sort of subject, or like um, episodes where the kids responsibility would end up in, the, in the movie, you know. Yeah, yeah. What do they call it? like? It's a literal physical thing, something, something like that. <laughs> but I remember too, like there was an episode where um, col- or where Tommy was uh, brought to college because his mom was apparently a college professor, <laughs> and um, Tommy ended up hearing about you know all these situations that you know college age kids were going through of course he's a baby he doesn't really understand but you know you're seeing all these things from the kids perspective and you're just like oh well this is you know i remember watching that episode as a, like episodes like that as a kid and being like you know, i wonder you know if that's something you know like what's that all about you know but then you get to hear the character's point of view so i think the characters actually talking like with that sort of thing you know they're just trying to copy what their parents say because sally doing the you owe me restitution like that totally to me just sounds like she heard an adult say that word when it wasn't just the wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and um just was trying to copy that you know just thinking like oh this is the situation to use that in right yeah yeah <laughs> Or when um what's when uh not when I was gonna be confused. Sally is Lucy is Linus's sister, right? Yes, right, correct. I always get their names confused. Or like when I believe it was Lucy in the Christmas special where she gets when she gets licked by uh, Snoopy and she goes, Get some iodine, get some disinfectant and stuff like yep. that. <laughs> or she gives psychiatric advice for a nickel. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's always good too. Yeah. It's uh oh, and El, you had mentioned that uh, you hadn't seen it in a while because it's been on cable, or I think I think even one year. It was yeah. Like exclusive yeah. To, like Apple Apple TV Plus or whatever the hell that's called. Oh yeah, but, that was last. That was so dumb. Was... But they they changed they changed it up for this year. They uh, PBS uh, now has the rights to be able to air it, so uh, it's going to be on PBS this year. And I think it's I gonna did I did see that, that actually a couple years. days ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could probably just get a DVD that has all the specials in them, which mm-hmm. I probably should. I don't know why I haven't, but, you know. But yeah, it was, it was good to see that it was going back on uh, public you know, TV, one of the, the network channels that people can, can more yeah. easily watch it this year as opposed to the last couple of few years. So it was nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially knowing around Christmas time when all these channels are like all the Christmas specials are split amongst multiple channels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that gets kind of nuts when you have to try and keep up with that sort of thing. Because if you want to see like one particular one, it's like, oh, you got to make sure you, you go to this channel or, you know, you got to pay, for, you know, just crazy stuff like that. I remember even as a kid, we're running into problems like that, where even though they aren't like the best um, holiday things, like I always like watching the, the Rankin Bass, like stop motion Christmas special sort of things. But those would be all over the place on TV as a kid, because one some of them would be on this channel. Some of them would be on that channel. Some of them, they'd only have it, like, on public TV. <laughs> All the Rudolph sequels are on ABC Family, but actual Rudolph is on CBS. Yeah, and then you have ones where now it's like a lot of them are on um, AMC, but not all of them are on AMC. Only some of them aren't. <laughs> 
Did you ever see the... This is a complete divergence. Have you ever seen the uh, 3D animated uh, Rudolph special? <laughs> no. Yes. It's, it is quite ugly, quite bad, and has horrible songs. I would oh, recommend <laughs> watching a clip or something on... I- uh, I, ha- I have a story for that one, but I, we'll, we'll save that for if we do um, another Christmas episode or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, I have seen that one, and it is quite bad. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, but uh, going back to uh, Peanuts, <laughs> um, I, I do remember, um, this is actually a funny one that happened a few years ago. So usually with my family, we just like for one of our like get togethers, we'll just do like a like a little family Halloween party where we just come in with different themes. And, you know, if you want to invite friends, whatever, that's fine. But there was one year that two of my cousins actually did the Charlie Brown ghost sheet thing where one of them just cut out like regular like little holes for his eyes so he could see out. And then the other one cut out a bunch of holes. So it looked like the one that Charlie Brown wears. <laughs> oh, that's great. Great, I like that. It, it was pretty funny because when they showed up, like immediately everybody's like, "Hey, it's Charlie Brown." <laughs> everybody knew, and then everybody gave him a rock. <laughs> that would have been great if we would have just had like that would have been great if somebody knew that ahead of time and just walked over and was like, "Here you go, have a rock." <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think this is one of those specials too that like that for whether you're talking about like the Peanuts Halloween one or the Christmas one that like if you talk to most people there's a good chance that they've all seen this one. It's it's one that a lot of people, I think it could be for, you know, most of our cases too, or it was one of the first Halloween specials we saw when growing up, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, this is one of the classics that a lot of people are familiar with uh, of, of all ages. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, do we have anything else to say about peanuts before we jump over to Evan for his last one or good to go? Uh, good to go. Good to go. All right. All right, Evan, take us on right. home. What's our final spooky thing of the night? Before I start, uh, I watched this on a streaming service called Shudder. Shudder is exclusively for uh, horror movies. They have a couple TV shows. They have some sci-fi stuff, but it's 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 like it's there's a lot of good horror movies on there. So I feel like if you are interested in watching anything scary, they cycle out some good horror movies. I think I watched Halloween last year on it. Uh, I remember watching. I think it was called The Fog. It, it, whole bunch of good stuff in there uh so if anyone's interested in horror uh shutter s-h-u-d-d-e-r but this the movie i watched was haunters the art of the scare it's a documentary about haunts as they refer them in the documentary we refer to them as haunted houses haunted hayrides all those fun little attractions that we do in october i thought it'd be a good idea to talk about a documentary that was a celebration of a fun activity we like to do in the middle of October, considering this is a uh, podcast that we celebrate uh, Halloween for. So the documentary itself was very amateur feeling. Like it felt like it was his first documentary, but it looked pretty professional. Like it would, if you watch any documentary, you go, yep, that's a documentary. But I feel like the, the amateur quality of it kind of goes a long way to making it feel like a, like a cute little love letter to such a specific and narrow industry. Like it referred, like it, I was kind of giggling at one part because, you know, they'll do the, this person, they're a scare actor, this person, co-creator of this attraction. And then there was one that was like person's name and their thing was doesn't like being scared. And so they interview some random guy uh, about being scared at attractions. It was like little stuff like that, that was very cute. Um, it shows you like the production that goes into some of these. 
a lot of them are like done in people's backyards. They're only for the night, but they spend like the whole month working on them. It talks about like how tough it can be on like marriages and relationships. And they discuss like the history, like how they got so popular. And they posit like the Depression era. People were like looking for an escape and building haunted houses was a very cheap, easy attraction to make. So it attracts a lot of people to them. Like, little stuff like that I thought was kind of cute. But the thing I want to talk most about is something that this documentary was really seizing on, like, the whole way. And it was the big personality of this guy named Russ McCamey. McCamey, that's how you say it. He is the owner and operator of McCamey Manor. And it's, like, one of what they call an extreme haunt. And it's, it's one of those haunts that's not, oh, here's a ghost. Here's this thing. It's not trying to scare you. It's trying to mentally scar you. Uh, They have to sign a waiver before they go in. And in this waiver, it says they can grab you, put food in your mouth, lock you in a closed space, put bugs and other animals on your head. They can waterboard you. They show like footage of them being grabbed, thrown into a truck and driven away at one point. And it was it was kind of interesting because you can tell that the crew like the documentary filmmakers did not like his style of haunted attraction because they keep going back to like the worst stuff the absolute worst stuff you could say like i remember there was there was one part where he's talking to his scare actors like oh i really want you to improvise and he gives an example to them like if you see someone throw up uh, you could pick up the vomit and put it back in their mouths stuff like that he talks about like some of the like the issues that have happened from employing teenagers because he employs teenagers as some of his actors and some of the unsavory stuff that happens when you hire those when you hire teenagers. And I think like I don't want to go too deep into it because it's kind of fun just watching it all unfold. This guy talking about and showing you footage of his haunt. I just want to show you like one, I just want to give you one specific example. So at at one point they talked to his neighbor and this neighbor was going through like a really rough time then, something to do with her personal life. And she really wanted to go through his haunted house. And so she goes in line and then, or she, she makes her appointment, whatever. And she kind of just says, nope, not doing it. And she leaves. And uh, the owner, Russ, his wife, like chases this woman down in their car. She says she watched the neighbor go into the bushes and they're like trying to escape her, hide from them. She does not want to do this. Somehow, some way, they had like convinced her to go through it. And she, in the middle of it, she got into an actual altercation with one of the people she was so distressed about it. And uh, someone came out with a prop axe and she was just trying so hard to get out of her hand. And she actually got into a fight with one of the actors and they had to shut the whole thing down. But she talks about how it was a traumatic experience that like she had to deal with for months. And the owner had tricked her three more times into going in. And this is a verbatim quote. I made sure I took this right from the subtitles. Uh, so he's asked like why he did it and he goes because I wanted the footage that's why because they'll do anything to get that special footage so will I do and say just about anything I guess I will because as a filmmaker you're really thinking about that shot and that's like the key he films these he is physically there with a camera 
egging them on while all these people are breaking down into tears and he's filming them and he spends long stretches of time making them into videos to put on youtube you can go and view youtube right now google mckamey manor on youtube and you'll pull up all these videos on his channel of these people suffering through his hunt and i thought it was really telling at one point like they go they they go oh we all these different haunts that are like homemade they're all these like simple efforts they're like oh yeah we have a safe word so if it's too much for people we stop the whole thing let them go all the all the extreme haunts they interview they all say we have a safe word he goes no i don't have one but i googled it i i checked like the wikipedia page i think they have since allowed a safe word but when they were filming this documentary he was like oh that's for wussies that's for cowards i'm not gonna I'm not going to have a safe word. And so you have these like people like crying, breaking down. They're like falling apart. And he's just like egging them on, bullying them. He, he keeps it going. He locks them in boxes. He heckles them. All while he's got a camera shoved in their face. And he's recording it. And he's just loving it. That was the messed up part. He, he, he has like this weird glee to his face while he's doing it. And he's like just so goofy while he's talking about it. Um, but yeah, it was overall, it was like a really nice documentary. I think he kind of overshadowed all the other ones. I, I refer to them as like more homey, but his is actually like he he works on it mostly himself and some other people. But it's at his own home and it's at his own expense. Um, he doesn't charge for entry. I think he said that he charges people dog food that has to be donated to a like a greyhound rescue shelter as like the as the way to enter like oh here four cans of dog food and he he people think that they're wealthy for because they have so many people they have to he does a i remember see i said i wasn't gonna talk about him but i'm talking about him this is how like how magnetic he is there's a part where um they show him interviewing people because he has to have a one-on-one -on -one interview with people before he lets them in to make sure that they're psychologically capable of handling it, that they're sane, they're doing it of their own volition. These people come from other countries. They fly 17, 20 hours from England to go through this guy's haunted house. And when they come out, they're like, this was so messed up. I can't believe I did this. This guy's sick in the head. It's ridiculous. So, but overall, it's about, like, the... They refer to them as boo scares. I, I loved all the little, like, terminology. Haunts, scare actors, boo scares. All these little terms that they have in this little community. And there was, like, one woman they interviewed who they referred to as legendary scare actress. And everyone's talking about how she's, like, this big name in their community and she's so famous. Um, it, it was, like, a very cute little thing about, oh, this is kind of... You never really think about this as, like, a subculture or people who are very passionate about it but um before i finish i do want to uh, before i wrap this up i do want to share one more quote that i thought was kind of interesting so there's another extreme haunt called blackout and blackout is like people like people were kind of comparing it to like torture like they, they have you go through torture similar to like, like sexual to torture like they have a guy running around naked they're it just all is like messed up stuff but like they say it was kind of inspired by like the way people were tortured um during the iraq war and stuff like that but so the one of the co-creators says 
And this is also an exact quote. So many of the people that come in the very beginning of the run were genuinely like, I don't believe that there is an experience that I'm going to pay for that's going to humiliate me, make me feel bad, and rip my clothes and try to fuck me up. But there we were. Well, um, definitely definitely a lot of uh, interesting things by the sound of it in that. Um, yeah, this um, that dude, he's he's actually kind of well known. I actually knew about him beforehand. He's like, if you watch like any travel channel documentary about scariest haunted attractions, he's usually one of them. So he's kind of like well known in that regard. This wasn't his first. This wasn't like his first documentary he's appeared in. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 I've seen and heard from him. He's kind of famous. I remember. I actually remember last year there was a. I don't know if you've heard of him. There's a, there's a YouTuber called Legal Eagle. He's kind of like a uh, lawyer youtuber who kind of goes over like cases that you know oh here's a scene from a tv show let me break down what's happening here or let me compare if this thing is legal sometimes he'll talk about real life events that are happening he'll talk about the legality of that he did a halloween special where he specifically went through the waiver they have to sign before they can do it and talk about the about whether the waiver was legal because i believe the wife was like a i think the wife worked at a law office and she helped draft the waiver and it has all these weird specifics in there but how they're allowed to waterboard you or put foreign substances in your mouth and stuff like that oh my is that like you talking about like the people like picking up you know people's vomit and stuff and putting that back in the mouth that's disgusting what the hell i don't know if that was something that actually happened but he was like just talking he was like coaching his actors like i want I really want you guys to improvise, you know? And he says this was, like, not, like, a straight face, but he's, mm. he's like, not being super serious about it. He's like, I want you guys to, you know, if someone vomits, I want you to pick it up and put it back in their mouths or shove it in their face. Stuff uh. like that, you know? <laughs> he's, like, very goofy. He's a very goofy guy. He acts very silly. And that mm. was kind of the weird thing about it. He was, like, when I was reading that quote from him earlier, he, he wasn't saying that super serious or stiff. He was acting, oh, you know, I just, I really want that footage. You know, I, I really love looking at that stuff. I really watch it. You know, he was, he was acting very fun. He had like a, he had like a weird, like warm smile at a point when he was like, when you see him like going through all the footage and he's like splicing it together to make a video. He just looks like he's so happy right now. It's very bizarre. He's a very strange, uh, I would say very sick individual, um, but it's a very interesting watch. I, again, I feel like they, they felt like they couldn't put him all in one spot, so they had to spread him out across the whole thing, because they had to go back to all these other people. They're not as dramatic or as interesting as him, but if you're interested in the subject, it's, it's kind of cute. Like, oh, this is He's putting together his thing, and, you know, his wife isn't a big fan, but they find a way to make it work. And then you go back to this guy, and he's like, yeah, I spent $100,000. I've probably spent half a million easy on on this, all the, all this crazy stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, I love watching. I love filming people being psychologically abused and then making videos. And it, it, it's not something you can just put in one spot and then pretend it never happened. You have to, like, spread him out across the entire 80 minutes or so of the documentary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Real interesting psychological terror going on there. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. A lot, of, a lot of touching, a lot of grabbing. He insists he doesn't like the, he doesn't like swears and he doesn't like any sexual themes in his, um, in any of his haunts. There was, one, there was one guy who was like, oh, yeah, we simulate all this awful sexual stuff. Or there's a guy running around naked at one part and... This other guy is like offended by it. It's like, I, I, I don't like that. I, I don't like any of the sexual stuff. 
let's uh, then you show him like putting tarantulas on people's faces Ew. putting people in a ball in a in a coffin and locking them in or handcuffing people and um, driving them to the location in a in a van or something Oh, I could not do the tarantula thing, man. That's disgusting. <laughs> and it's a, it's long too. They said it's like it's as it can run as long as ten hours. Most like he says, no one has ever fully completed it. Boy, <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than that. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, and it's just like so weird because, like I said, it's it's like a very he's a very. I even said, oh, I'm not going to talk about this guy too much because it's it's you know. It, you know, I don't want to ruin it, but um, it, he just has something about him, and his his haunt is just so much more extreme than the other ones they show. He's he he accounts for a large chunk of it, but he's not the whole thing. They take you through all these like other actors. They show you the process, the makeup. Um, they talk about what they love about doing scary, you know, you know, scaring people. They love the the improv of it. It sh- they show you these people building all these haunted attractions, all these little ideas. Oh, I'll do this thing. Oh, I'll do that thing. You know, oh, we, we run this for only four hours. We spend a whole month working on it. Oh, here's, uh, this is a fun thing I like to do with my family. You know, they used to, my brothers used to bully me when I was, when I was young, but now this is something that we all love to do together. They talk about, you know, this one guy is hoping he can use the skills uh, he's developed to take it into into a it, to develop it into a real job building props. Like one guy, he's he was a former prop maker. Um, this is kind of like his side hobby. Or you get all these people going, oh yeah, I'm actually a nurse by day, but I just really love coming home from work and then going to my other job, dressing up as a a scare, you know, scary monster or whatever, and jumping out and freaking people out. It, there was a lot of that more like wholesome stuff in there. But then it cuts to this guy who's like, "Oh yeah, I love torturing people. Oh yeah, I love it. Oh, it's so great. Oh, and that's like a cartoony version of him, but that's kind of like how he acts. Oh, I just love filming people when this happened. Oh yeah, I thought it was so funny when my uh, my neighbor went in to the haunted house. I loved messing with her. Oh, it was so great. Oh, you know, it, it's 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 very bizarre." The whole, the whole thing was very bizarre, but I thought I felt like it was a good love letter overall to such a specific industry that we only ever really think about around this time of year. So I think it's like a good short documentary uh, that you can watch around October. Well, all right, that'll be a good thing to keep in mind then, because I don't really know if I want to really watch that guy's parts too much. But um, <laughs> I mean, it, it does sound like an interesting thing just to hear people talk about how they like to do, you know, that sort of thing in their free time. Then, so I bet that part would be the interesting things. I mean, or they it, had to, the interesting part they, to check out. They had to like make the documentary not like kid friendly, but like not like super violent. So it's not like you're seeing a lot of like gory stuff. It's just kind of this is a real person acting kind of suspicious on film right now. To be quite mm-hmm. honest. <laughs> It's, you don't really, really see a guy act like this on camera and there's like a part where like the interview his his wife and someone's like what what is the worst case scenario what are you afraid is, is going to happen and she's like you're really going to ask me to put that on film because you know obviously their big fear is that someone will die going mm-hmm. through this haunted attraction mm-hmm. but they insist the only if I remember correctly they said the only actual injury was there was someone who had a heart attack during it hmm. uh, yeah well, it would be pretty serious too all right yeah 
Well, I think that's definitely uh, the best thing that we could have ended our spooky episode on. <laughs> Lots of uh, crazy stuff in that one, that's for sure. But you, um, so I think that'll do it for this latest Halloween spooktacular episode. Um, again, I'd like to thank Pendy uh, for joining me as co-host tonight, and we'd like to thank uh, you, Evan, for joining us tonight as our guest. And well, thank you. It's great having you back on. We'll try and have make sure that we have more episodes where it's not just the halloween themed or the <laughs> holiday themed ones excuse me <laughs> i mean thanksgiving is coming up you do need someone for the thanksgiving episode this, of course. this is true <laughs> this is true we're gonna have to figure out some something to talk about for now <laughs> we'll talk about like obscure um thanksgiving themed shows and games and stuff <laughs> planes trains and automobiles hey perfect timing there we go all right spider-man <laughs> which one oh yeah yeah, yeah the people are trying to appropriate that into a th- thanksgiving movie the last couple of years you talking <laughs> about the original sam raimi movie yeah okay um but uh let's see uh but yes tonight has been as i said before a very spooktacular episode Ooh. it sure has been and one scary thing we didn't mention was the absolutely frightful idea of patreon we're all just longtime fans of Drag- the drag quest series who do this, do this for fun. If you'd like to support the podcast, though, consider astral projecting yourself on over to the Dragon's Den and supporting the website and the forums. Woodis, Woodis has been maintaining the Dragon's Den for 20 years and would appreciate all the love and support you can give. You can support the site with a click of the Amazon affiliate link he has. Any purchases you make, whether for games or whatever you need, a small portion of it will go to supporting the den. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. You can save all your money for more Halloween candy. Uh, if you have any suggestions for a future SideQuest episode, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, you can reach out to me, uh, Yangus the Legendary Bandit, on the Dragon's Den forums or on the Dragon's Den Discord uh, via personal messages or via one of the channels. Uh, in particular, we have a Slime Time channel on the Discord for the Dragon's Den. And you can also reach out to our other usual host, uh, platym 3 via his Twitter or via the same places that I mentioned before, uh, the Dragon's Den itself or through the Dragon's Den. And Discord. Uh, we have a list of ideas uh, that we keep adding to, and we keep, you know, tweaking around what we're going to talk about this and that one. I know Platy was uh, potentially kicking around the idea that we could do a Falcom game themed episode in the future. Uh, but if you have any suggestions for a possible topic, we'd love to hear from you. Whether it's a holiday themed one, uh, just a particular genre, whatever the case might be, we'd be happy to hear from you and add it to our list. And for any additional questions, comments, or to advertise with us, reach no, out. No, 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 no advertising. We're not doing. No, 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 no. We're not doing the advertising thing. That's for that's for Prime. That's not for SideQuest. <laughs> well, if we, you, if we do you, this uh, one for fun. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, if you ever, uh, if you ever on Facebook, if you ever hang out at the uh, Dragon Questers Facebook group, you can find me and uh, contact me there as well. <laughs> um, but if you are looking to check out, I will read this one because this one we should tell people. Uh, if you're looking for more uh, Dragon Quest Slime Time to check out, whether it's our uh, side quest episodes or the Prime episodes themselves, uh, you can check out the earlier episodes on the Dragon's Den itself, uh, Anchor.fm, iTunes, Spotify, uh, YouTube, which the YouTube version will be eventually uploaded, and uh, to more options. Bye, everyone. Side quest Halloween 2 Electric Boogaloo complete. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more.
Hey there, and welcome to Platy's Postscript. Unfortunately, as you might have noticed, I was not available to record with everybody else for the uh, Halloween Boogaloo episode that they did, but I wanted to put my own little note in here. Um, if you in any way recognize the song that was uh, just played uh, as my little break-in intro and thinking about horror, then you probably know what I'm going to talk about. And that's the TV show Supernatural. Um, It's a show that ran for a heck of a long time, from 2005 through 2020. This was a show that my ex-wife was like dying to watch and talk to me into it because I'm not one for scary movies or TV shows or anything. Um, But there was a couple (laughs) reasons I gave it a go at the beginning. Um, And mainly it was the two actors that were on it because the show Supernatural is about two brothers. You got Sam and Dean. And Sam is played by Jared Padalecki, um, the big guy who was Rory's high school boyfriend, um, oddly enough, named Dean, the other character, um, from Gilmore Girls. Uh, I think I had just finished, like, binging a bunch of Gilmore Girls seasons one summer when I was off of work and was just like, eh, you know what, I know that guy. Uh, Maybe I'll check it out, too. But then... The other actor uh, who plays the brother Dean on the TV show was it's played by Jensen Eccles. Um, And this is someone I remember from, geez, like high school or middle school days, uh, because my mom has been a fan of the Days of Our Lives soap opera going back to like my birth in this late 70s. So I remember seeing him when she would record TV shows and like watch it during dinner. I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I, I know that actor. And also he had just been on the season of Smallville right before the old WB decided, hey, let's put these two together on a new show, call it Supernatural, and we'll have Monsters of the Week. Because basically the show is uh, about these two brothers fighting supernatural beings. Um, They're fighting vampires, werewolves, demons, minor gods and mystical creatures from pretty much every religion or region of the world. Um, They meet Hindu gods and goddesses one time at a hotel that are just hanging out there. They're like, yeah, we haven't had much to do in a while. So, you know, we're just having our little annual convention here. Um, And the show kind of hooked me back in 2005 and i just i kind of fell off it towards the last three seasons but then uh, a few months ago i went through and just like binge the last two or three seasons straight through and just had a really fun good emotional time uh with these characters that i'd watched for 327 episodes i believe was the total count so other than these two brothers that are always out battling the supernatural stuff they meet a bunch of people um and over 15 seasons some part-time people come along more frequently some drop off um at i think it was season four where they met castiel who is an angel pulls dean out of hell and they had only meant to make this character some like reoccurring character for a season or two and just the fan reaction to him and the way that Misha Collins played him. He became a series regular for 10 years. It was, and just this kind of clueless angel, clueless about the world, always kind of deadpan, never showed very much emotion. Um, Almost think about like Star Trek and how Spock is and if people were cracking on Spock all the time because he didn't understand, you know, idioms and sayings they were going about and modern things they were talking about. But uh, Castiel was there good actor um it really played like this role of an angel um 
and one that was totally bent on doing right no matter what for the greatest good the whole time um and of course you know if you're gonna have an angel you got to have a bunch of other people on the other side uh they they run into this guy crowley who's on for quite a few seasons he's this uh powerful demon that gets even more powerful as the show goes on um they meet lucifer they meet the devil um lucifer later on has a son and they adopt him and jack for like the last three seasons becomes a big part of the show um you know if you're gonna have angels and the devil of course they meet god at some point and god becomes kind of a reoccurring character off and on throughout the uh some different seasons here and there um so this show did go on for 15 seasons, and I know originally it was planned to go for five. Um, they had this whole uh, premise where the f- opening episode, Sam and Dean were raised by a father who was a supernatural being hunter, um, went out and killed demons and other stuff, and just brought the boys along on car trips to go kill things, and usually left the boys alone in hotel rooms while he went and killed things and then came back. So Dean, as the older brother, had to uh, mainly raise his younger brother in a series of hotels, and as the boys got older, uh, Sam decided this wasn't the life for him. I want to go to college. I want to have a normal life. I'm out of here. And the series kind of opens with uh, Sam's fiancé, girlfriend, college girlfriend, fiancé, getting murdered by a demon, and his brother Dean comes, picks him up, and they talk about how this is a demon that their dad's been hunting for a while. They think it's the demon that killed their mother uh, years ago when they were little. <clears throat> so Sam decides, okay, I'll get back into the life. I want to hunt this demon. And, and about the first five, I think it's either four or five seasons that they finally get the revenge. Woohoo! Yay, we did it. Um, and then the show had just become so popular, the WB and then the CW is like, well, let's just keep going. Um, so there's some better seasons and... Good seasons and some that are kind of weird. Uh, there's always an overarching season things. Either they're fighting demons or angels or God's sister. They're fighting the nothing from purgatory. They're fighting British people. Um, archangels, archangels from other dimensions, Lucifer, um, etc. There's like always kind of a big bad of the season. Um, and it's a lot to keep going for 15 seasons, but they, they just kept juggling it and people died. Keep People came back to life. People died again. People came in from different dimensions to play the same characters. It was, uh, you know, no one was ever fully gone in, in the show um, until the actor got cut. But even then, they could bring in a different actor and just, oh, hey, I'm the same demon just inhabiting another body. So it, it was always kind of funny to see who's coming back that you haven't seen for like five seasons and then, ta-da, they're right back there. Um, so... Pretty much every episode, the way it would go, since there was always a big story arc going on throughout the season, but all these seasons are like 20 plus episodes, um, you know, they couldn't, that story couldn't carry 20 some episodes, you know, 800 minutes per season, but it was mainly a Monster of the Week show. Um, the show would usually have an opening where some idyllic scenes going on, usually in a Midwest small town, you know, just a family eating dinner, you know, kids making out in the backseat of a car in the park after dark, somebody out walking their dog, and then boom, there would be an unseen attack, you'd see a splash of blood, you'd hear like crunch of bones or just a nasty kind of squish, and someone was dead or gone, missing. Um, Cut to Sam and Dean, they'd be somewhere just chatting around, uh, if there was some other story arc stuff, they'd get 
to that a little bit, but usually they'd be on the internet looking for new cases to take on and be like, oh, damn, look at this, you know? Somebody's heart was eaten out, and they're calling it a dog attack in this little town in Kansas. Like, we should go investigate. And usually they'd rolled in um, in their uh, black car. They'd pull up. Um, they'd be dressed all up as, like, FBI agents, and they'd walk in, and they're like, hi, I'm Agent Sonny, and I'm Agent Cher. Yeah, I know. Kind of kind of weird names, but... And there's always obviously funny fake monikers. They always had something like that every episode. Um, usually they'd talk to the local police get involved, they'd investigate. Um, usually they'd have to study some ancient tomes, talk to some witches or something, usually figure out what is this obscure mystical monster that they're dealing with, figure out a way to defeat it, and kill it. So that that was a basic plot structure of most episodes that weren't um, leaning fully into the overall story arc of the season. Um, some episodes did that. Most were Monster of the Week kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed about this show was always the humor. I mean, yeah, it was horror. People were always dying. There's always blood everywhere. Um, people getting eaten, people dying. But there was always, like, humor. <laughs> the Sam character was the pretty straight and narrow guy. I mean, he'd gone to college and gotten out of the life for a while. Um, he was very studious, um, very serious. Whereas you got Dean, the other brother, he's always joking. He's out looking for women. He's always drinking a beer. Um, he's always eating the most ridiculous amount of food that would cause anybody else to have a heart attack um he's always watching cartoons and porn all the time he'd make comments about these things but the brothers you know complete opposites but they're always looking out for each other once castiel joined a few seasons in um as that angel on earth that didn't know much a lot of the humor revolved around him and his reaction to the things that Dean was doing um, or just the situations at hand. Um, if he was in part of the investigation, he'd always be like completely clueless. Like other police would be like, oh, is he with you? And they'd always have to make some excuse for why he was the way the way he was. Um, it, there was always a really good sense of right and wrong in the show. Um, you had angels and demons, but at some point, Throughout any season, any given season, the uh, two brothers here would be siding with the angels to do something or siding with the demons because the angels were being dicks about something. And they were always like, hey, we're here to fight for humanity. Screw everybody else that's trying to do this. Um, at one point, they killed death. They killed the Grim Reaper. <laughs> there was always like they were always trying to do what they saw was right for humanity. And so, I mean, there was always this like glowing kind of really good hope behind the show um even though like the body count was skyrocketing in every episode um just a hilarious show a little bit scary a little bit funny um had definitely equal parts of both i would say and at the same time it was a drama it was a brother drama um 327 episodes over 15 years and i'm going to close this by talking about my three favorite ones uh i, I don't think i sat down and did a list but this there's just some that really stand out uh there's an episode uh i want to say it's probably in the first half of the series somewhere uh witch or somebody curses the brothers cast a spell whatever they're in a fight with somebody and they like smash through a mirror and crash to the floor and like get up and all of a sudden somebody's like cut yeah that was a great take and they're like what the hell um the they've been transported to a world basically our world where they're in vancouver and they're actors on a tv show called supernatural 
it the whole episode is ridiculously meta um they run into misha collins who plays castiel and in the show castiel's always very serious like i said like the mr spock of the show and when they run into the actor misha collins he's like laughing and taking selfies with them and like oh my god i gotta tweet this out this is gonna be awesome and he's just laughing and having a great old time um to get away from that they duck into uh dean's trailer uh or jensen eckles trailer and the tv in the trailer is on and it's showing a scene from him from days of our lives and they just crack on him because like, oh my god dean you're a soap opera actor that's ridiculous oh my god can you believe a world where that's the case and you, they get a good laugh out of that um so i think these meta kind of episodes that were like totally fan favorites uh, definitely some of my favorites too um there is another running joke that leads to another one of my favorite shows. Uh, another running joke slash storyline that starts in season four and goes all the way pretty much to the end is there's this uh, guy out there, Chuck, that is writing supernatural Sam and Dean fan fiction stories. And <laughs> so like in in the world of the show, there's somebody writing stories about them and having conventions and selling merchandise all about them uh, and all the fans you know, they, they just think it's made up and it's just, it's just this guy writing, but they love it. Um, they're really, they're, they're like sought after it sometimes like, oh my God, you're like the real Sam and Dean. And they're like, well, we are the real Sam and Dean. Um, but to do a great episode 200, uh, for reasons, the brothers end up at this high school and the students there in the drama club are putting on a supernatural musical and they're like acting out scenes from episodes in the past, um, tons of great funny moments like that um thinking back to our real world there's a lot of fan fiction out there with this show and a whole lot of it focuses on uh relationships with uh dean and castiel hooking up um i think it's oh gosh they got a fan name like dniel or something um they just ship these two characters fan fiction writers all the time um and that comes out during the musical um i, I can't remember if they just like are making out or whatever and dean's like what the fuck <laughs> Like, well, th that didn't happen. And they're like, dude, have you read the books? Like, this happens all the time. Um, and at the end of the episode, there's an awesome rendition of Kansas's Carry On My Wayward Son, the song I played earlier, because that's basically the theme song of this series. They play it anytime uh, at the beginning of episodes when they want to do a story recap, usually the last episode of a season, or if they have like mid-season breaks or something, they'll always play that and, you know, hey, here's the story so far this season. Um, and that show that started i want to say first season or second season and it goes it's like the end song of the final episode even so but the uh high school kids put on a really awesome vocal rendition of it at the end of that episode 200 and that's really cool and <laughs> if this wasn't bizarre enough i want to say it's season 13 uh maybe even 12 they put on a freaking scooby-doo episode 100% it's freaking Scooby-Doo. Um, they did this animated, half-animated episode. I mean, it starts like any other regular episode of the show. But then at one point, they're going to investigate in this, uh, I don't I, I want to say it's like a thrift shop or something like that. And they get zapped by the bad guy of the episode. And it beams them into the television. And suddenly they're animated. And they end up at a bar. And there's Scooby and the gang, like, ordering pizza and everything. And Dean, being the immature uh, person he is, is like, oh my god. God, it's Scooby-Doo. Oh, my God. And he goes up and he's trying to hook up with Daphne. Um, and they end up in a I want to say they end up in a mansion and there's a murder and they got to, like, solve the murder. And there's a ghost or something like that, um, like most everything else. And most of the episode is animated. You get Sam.
Sam and Dean animated and you got Scooby-Doo and everybody right there. Um, it's taking place in a TV, but eventually they get out and they figure who the bad guy is that did it. And the guy gets arrested. And of course, just like in Scooby-Doo, um, it's a shady real estate developer that who's behind it all and as he's getting taken away by the police and put in the car he turns around he's like yeah i would have gotten away with it too if not for you meddling kids and at this point like dean is beside himself he's like he said the line he said the line he said the line man and the camera zooms in on him and he goes scooby-dooby-doo and everybody kind of looks at him and he's like what like that's what happens at the end of a scooby-doo episode they're like dude you're not a freaking dog we're not on tv come on so you know just at 327 episodes there's a good meta one every other season or so that is just totally pays homage to all the fans that have stuck with it for that many shows so i hope you enjoyed everybody else's tv shows and movies um and Halloween specials with uh, Charlie Brown. But since I couldn't be there with them that night, I wanted to record my own little bit, stick it here at the end. And at this point, I will leave you with what my co-host usually says, side quest complete. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay you Don't you cry no more